Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You're really going to dig it. Go check it out and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. It's Jason Louvre. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. My guest today is Faraday Speaks, who is, I guess I can describe him as a de-radicalization YouTuber. He and I spoke together three whole years ago. This interview has been sitting in the can for three years, I am embarrassed to say. Here's what happened. Faraday Speaks did a YouTube at that time that blew up, got a I think went super viral, got huge traction that was about his experience being radicalized into the alt-right by, in his words, falling into a YouTube pipeline. Uh, You know, he says that he was drifting in life, ended up watching the wrong YouTubes and slowly becoming radicalized into the alt-right movement. He then got out of it and has spent the last several years helping other people get out of it. The YouTube got so big that actually the New York Times picked it up almost right away and it got a tremendous amount of mainstream coverage. And I spoke to him almost immediately after, I think within a few days. And we ended up having a great conversation. We talked for three hours just about the you know, his, his life, his experience of becoming radicalized, realizing that he was suddenly in a far right racist cult, leaving it, helping others to leave it. And just having a broader conversation about the alt-right extremism, racism in America. And I think broadly speaking, how extremist ideologies prey on people. So Unfortunately, I think right after we did this episode, there was kind of this suddenly there was this YouTube or excuse me, there was this Twitter narrative happening all of a sudden that he might actually be an, uh, like a Nazi troll who was trolling from from 4chan. That is definitely not the case. He's been doing he's been doing his de-radicalization videos ever since. But it was enough of a concern at the time. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't think that that was really even in the realm of possibility after speaking to him, but it was such a narrative at the time. And it was, I just figured I would at least wait for a little bit. And I actually asked him about it on Twitter. But then 
as things happen, I got wrapped up in other stuff. I was doing other stuff with the business. And then lo and behold, COVID happened and two years of drama, mayhem, and panic ensued, including moving seven times. I had no idea where the file was. Uh, so long, you don't need to know the, the story. It's, it's meaningless, but I have just found the file. And so finally, apologies to Faraday Speaks. It has been three years in coming, but I am finally putting out the episode. Now, I did record an intro a few days ago for this in which I said, you know, maybe this is more of a historical piece. It's more about where politics were at during the Trump administration. The alt-right, you know, as a movement online appears to have been scattered to the four winds. I don't think it really exists anymore, etc. But unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, Faraday Speaks put his video out shortly after the Christchurch, excuse me, Christchurch shootings in New Zealand. And in the middle of putting this episode together, very tragically, we've had another one in Buffalo that appears to be inspired by the Christchurch shooting that, you know, is definitely a white supremacist attack in which a manifesto was issued much like the Christchurch one. So, uh, I was being just a tad naive in saying that this was historical. It is unfortunately just as relevant, if not more relevant now than when we recorded it. So unfortunately, very unfortunately, I don't think this is a problem that's going away anytime soon. And um, I, I don't know what else I can say about that. It's not going to come off as kind of trite thoughts and prayers. It's, it's an ongoing tragedy and an ongoing infection that we have to deal with as a society. So I hope that this podcast is helpful in contextualizing things. I think it's a great podcast and I'm glad that I'm finally able to bring it out. So with no further ado, here is Faraday Speaks. How's it going? Thank you. It's going great. It's oh, it's going great, Jason. Um, uh, today was a nice day. I went for a little drive, um, came home, and then was excited to talk to you. Awesome. So I saw your video. Your video has been all over the internet. I saw your video yesterday, actually, in the ContraPoints Dank Meme Stash Facebook group. and. I, I would, I really just, I felt like I needed to reach out to you and I really wanted to talk to you because I feel like you have the potential of a really strong voice that is needed right now. And your video, just to briefly recap, I think it's about 40 minutes and you talk about how you had got drawn into the alt-right and then particularly, if I'm, if I'm correct in, in recapping your video, that after, particularly after the, I think before and then particularly after the Christchurch shooting, realized um, you were in very, very uh, dangerous territory and that you needed to get out. And so I wanted to, I wanted to talk to you and, and I wanted to see what your experience has been like. And I particularly, um, I, I think that it's such a crucial conversation to be having right now, particularly because I think that there has been so much warfare online and uh, along the political spectrum. And particularly after the seriousness of Christchurch, we cannot any longer pretend how big of a problem this is. And I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. And so I think that voices like yours, people who were in 
this you know kind of decentralized online cult, as, as you put it, uh, and then got out are really really powerful and perhaps the most you know the most powerful way to actually combat this rather than you know it's just showing people you know what it was showing people that there is a way out perhaps but i've 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 rambled too much why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about about your story please i'm from west virginia i've grown up here my whole life i was born out of state but uh Shortly after my birth, I was brought into state. Um, grew up here my whole life. Uh, had a rough home life with my family. Um, didn't get along. Didn't see eye to eye. Uh, ironically, there was a lot of racism in my family that I really despised. But it was that kind of old school racism. You know, the kind of the type of racism that you saw directed at Barack Obama whenever he became president. And so, anybody that's aware of the types of things they were hearing during those times knows what type of racism I'm talking about. Um, the Christchurch shooting is not what spurred me to change my mind. Although I don't know if the Christchurch shooting would have changed my mind. It would have showed, it would have, I would have been against it. I would have thought that it was horrible, but I still would have probably sympathized with the manifesto a lot. Um, what brought me out of it was a series of life experiences and then also being exposed to other YouTubers, um, which this all goes back to the algorithm, which, with, you know that's how I was radicalized in the first place. Uh, the algorithm uh, favored me one day, and it showed me destiny, and then it showed me contrapoints. And between that and the experiences I had at that particular point in life, I realized how wrong I was about everything that I believed. Um, and so you talk. So well, let's let's back up and and where were you before? you kind of got drawn in perhaps by the algorithm, you know, like the YouTube algorithm before you were exposed to alt-right ideas, where were you, what was going on in your life and why was it that, you know, is there something that you think perhaps made you vulnerable to it? Yeah. So, you know, when I was brainwashed, I believed that everything was just about the work that you put into things, the idea of the meritocracy and justified hierarchies. But now I, now I know that we're a condition of our environment and the variables in our life that line up. And so there were definitely, var- I'm not some innocent soul, you know, uh, that, that that's, I don't mean to put it that way. There were variables that created the circumstances that I led into. It wasn't solely the algorithm to blame. Um, I grew up in West Virginia where there's a lot, a lot of economic disenfranchisement. Uh, there's not a lot of opportunity for you. Um, and if you mess up your Pell Grant for college, you're done. And that's something that happened to me. I didn't have a good family life growing up. I, f- uh, I very much just didn't have that stable support structure. And this wasn't something that I actually realized until recently, even just within the last couple of weeks that how important, how important having a family and having a strong foundation in your life is. And that's what, you know, keeps you from feeling that sort of anxiety and woe about life. Um, those things set me up and I can, if you'd like, I'll tell the, the actual story, but those, yeah. 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 So I'll just tell the story. Those things were the things that set me up to be taken in by this message. So growing up, bad home life, lots of yelling, lots of fighting, physical abuse, emotional abuse, everything but sexual abuse. Um, uh, divorce, 
uh, custody battle. Um, and then I ended up getting raised by a family that quite honestly was not my biological family, but I had a half brother and a half sister. Um, I won't go into that yet. I'll talk about that in more, in more detail in the future in videos, but it's a sad story. Um, and I grew up with a family that was not blood related to me. They didn't look like me, any of that stuff. And I didn't learn the truth till I was much older. Um, probably about 13, 14. That was devastating. Um, but so I, when I went to college, you know, in high school, I got picked on bullied. I actually w would go on YouTube a lot in high school when I first got high speed internet. This was back in like the 2008 days, you know, early YouTube. And, um, I would look at a lot of different stuff. I was curious. I would look at political stuff, uh, religious stuff, a lot of the stuff that you probably cover, occultism. I would look at conspiracy theories. The algorithm would just feed you these things. But in those days, in those days, there was no, um, actual, there was no consistency to anything. It was just people uploading things that they had taken from DVDs and stuff. There was no central message to all this stuff. So you'd hop around from Illuminati to Flat Earth, to whatever. And as a young, impressionable kid, I would pick up ideas and just throw them away, having no attachment to them. Uh, the only thing that probably had the strongest attachment was like the New Atheist Movement, which is one thing that sucked a lot of people into this. It's not what got me, but a lot of people I talk to in emails get sucked through the pipeline through the yeah, atheism. If I, if I correct, it's kind of New Atheist to Libertarian to Alt-Right. Is that correct? Well, no, well, no, no, no. I'm so for me, I'll tell you how I got sucked into the pipeline. But I talk, I get a lot of emails from people that they watched a lot of the Richard Dawkins and a lot of the Christopher Hitchens. And then from there, they got sucked into a guy named TJ Kirk, who did a lot of atheism back in the day. And I would say they did good the work. Amazing, is that the amazing atheist? The amazing atheist. Okay. Yes. Um, and in those days, they were doing very good work. But then as the, as they won the fight against the, you know, evangelicals on, on the internet, they kind of forced them off the platforms because the evangelicals just ran out of arguments and these people were pumping out content. Um, they ran out of material. And then that's when Gamergate happened. And then that's when the anti SJW rhetoric started. And then anti, you know, Islamophobic rhetoric started, anti feminist rhetoric started. And then a lot of people found themselves going through the pipeline that route. The way I fell into the pipeline was after I went you know, do, I was accustomed to YouTube, going to YouTube for answers. I went to college. I didn't have a support structure. I thought I was chasing all these things, thinking that I needed all these things to uh, support myself. Because my senior year, I had a very productive year. And I thought I was ready. I thought I was going to have all these dreams and goals. When I went to college, all fell apart. And then I dropped out, was back at home. Why, did, why, why did that fall apart? I, well, I was looking, I was, uh, trying to get in with the wrong friend groups. Um, I partied a lot in high school and then I kind of fell back into hanging out with those types of people. And, um, I just stopped going to class. I became depressed. I stayed in my room a lot playing computer games. Um, I didn't really watch a lot of YouTube at that time. I mostly played computer games and, um, and slept and watched Netflix and, I got to stay in the dorm room till the end of the year because they don't kick you out if you don't go to class because you, your room's paid for. I went back the next year to try again and this, and the same thing happened. I was chasing people. I roomed with some people in, an, in a, a trailer off campus and that didn't work out, fell apart again, um, came back home. Uh, and then I was stuck 
And from that point, I thought, well, there's something wrong with me that I need to fix. Went to YouTube because I knew that YouTube would have answers. I didn't have access to a therapist or anything. And so I went to YouTube for answers. And I started looking at neuroscience, self-help stuff. There was a guy I watched a lot called Athene, a gamer that I had watched in high school. It's really weird. Like the way this works is there's central figures that kind of repeat themselves throughout my life. So mm-hmm. Athene was one of the figures. He was someone that I watched in high school and gave me a lot of self-help. Stopped listening to him, picked him up later on down the road and listened to his stuff. I'll send you links later. Um, but I uh, talked about self-help, but he kind of, he was kind of creating a cult of his own that didn't really take off too well. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, from him, and watching that kind of content and watching like generic self-help content, found stuff, Stefan Molyneux in the sidebar of the algorithm. And Stefan's story resonated with me. Um, he was, he had the same types of life experiences as a kid. Uh, he was similar to me in that he was very intelligent, uh, had a lot of, had a lot going for him. And I saw, I looked up to him and I saw him as someone to be looked up to. I kind of set him up as a father figure because I didn't have one in my life. And then from there, he was, get, he was, he was healing me. He really was. He, he ingrained things into me like truth, honor, respect, you know, uh, always doing the right thing, being very virtuous and putting virtue above everything else. I love those things. What I didn't know is that all this help he was giving me came at a cost. He was not giving it out for free. And while he was giving me these truths and these virtues, he was also red-pilling me. And for anyone that doesn't know, red pill is, uh, it comes from the movie The Matrix. And it's about taking, you take the red pill, you know, Morpheus offers Neo the red pill and he says, do you want to know the truth about reality and wake up? Or do you want to take the blue pill and go back to sleep? And it really works for the rhetoric because it's red, blue, Republican, Democrat. And so it's like the perfect analogy for them. Except when you take the red pill that I was given, you don't wake up to the truth. You just roll back over and go right back to sleep. Hmm. Um, I took, he kept giving me the red pill and I kept taking it. And I slowly adopted libertarian beliefs. Um, and then, uh, so from there, you want me to continue as how I, because from, from there, I just keep going down the funnel. Um, so this is, so yes, when you talk about the red pill, you're broadly talking about the repackaging of conservative, not just conservative ideas, but far increasingly far right and even extreme right ideas for people your age, you know, people on, the, on YouTube or people on the internet uh, or gamers in many cases. And packaging it as something, you know, with the frame that it's something that society doesn't want you to know about. And that it's almost kind of like a, it's almost kind of like a religious, from my observation of it, it's almost like a religious initiatory process, right? Where you, you go through, you, you learn each new thing and then you're basically, you're self-indoctrinating on the internet. Nobody's there, you're not in a physical cult. Nobody's there over your shoulder forcing you to believe anything. Nobody's threatening you. You're doing all the work yourself. You're self-indoctrinating by consuming all this stuff on the internet, which is stuff that has increasingly become the mainstream cultural discourse, right? So um, that's my understanding of the red, what the red pill is, you know, but it, it's really just kind of this complex of all of these 
these far-right ideas that have been packaged in a way to seem enticing to people, right? Yeah, so from what I understand, it actually started in the uh, pickup artist community where they were kind of red-pilling uh, people in the truce about women, um, you know, and I, I don't want to get into that because that's a whole other tangent. But then the uh, people like Stefan and the far writers picked it up from there. And I like the way that you put it. The way I the way I just super simplify it and think about it. First of all, it is about chasing uncomfortable truths, and that's why you're that's why they get you to believe it because it's like, well, the liberals are emotional, and so you're the one that's willing to contend with the real reality, right? Mm-hmm. And I, the way I like to think about it, and I think you'll like this, is that you're constantly chasing hidden knowledge. And so you're constantly like, you want more and more because it's like, well, what is the real truth? What's the real truth? And it is kind of like a cult thing. Like the elites are hiding this reality from me and I must figure it out. And this person is going to help me figure it out. It's very alluring. And I think that's why when you're on that spectrum, you feel a drive to go deeper. There's always a, there's something pulling you like this dark force is pulling you deeper and deeper. Um, I felt it. Um, what is the emotional like without even without making it intellectual what is the feeling in your body that you were having as you were consuming this stuff was it like like you're saying like a feeling of pull or fascination or of anger of enjoying the feeling of anger of feeling special i mean what were you feeling in your what were you feeling tangibly and physically while consuming this stuff so I think it's pretty clear that like I was in high school watching a lot of conspiracy theory stuff. And so I was pretty primed to the idea that there's something in growing up in an environment where things are pretty messed up and not, no one's coming to the rescue. You get this sense that there's something wrong with the world. There is just something fundamentally wrong. And so from there, you're like, well, what is it? And then you have this like emotional curiosity and this drive to want to figure out what it is. And then once you start to take the red pills, there is an anger. There's an anger that I can't believe I was lied to. I can't believe they held the truth for me. I must know more. And then it's like a, it's a feeling you get in your chest and your gut. Hmm. And then it's a feeling of like anxiety, excitement, fear, and anger. It's like the ultimate, I don't know what brain chemical you would relate it back to, but it is the ultimate drug. Um, and it's just, and the way YouTube works, you can constantly get your next dose of it. It's right there. You don't have to wait. Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was, you, you skipped ahead a few steps. Yeah, it's kind of what I was angling for because I think that it's, it's very useful to look at these things almost less like ideologies and more like drugs, right? Because there's this kind of this rush maybe or this feeling that people get. And this is something that in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, cults, you know, real world cults were very, very good at engineering and figuring it out. Scientology is a good example, where they were able to engineer this feeling of people just, oh, just getting to the next level. And, you know, there's always something new being revealed. And, you know, anyone who's had experience of, you know, actual drugs knows that feeling of there being, they're being led towards some greater hallucination all the time. And I think that, you know, one thing that has been terrifying and fascinating for me about this whole phenomenon is how much, A, how much it really does seem exactly what you described. It's this drug experience that you're always being led towards some greater and greater high. You know, this is why they, you know, this is why heroin users call this chasing the dragon. 
you yeah. know, it's literally like chasing the tr- a tail of a dragon that never quite you can never quite grab. And also, while you're destroying yourself and the people around you the whole time, because you're not focused on that, you're focused on just getting to the next thing. And the other thing is, what I think people really need to realize, and, and I love your thoughts about this, is people have this dismissive, this, it's not necessarily dismissive, but people have this attitude about the internet, like, oh, the internet is not real life. It's just on the internet. You can always just turn off the computer or your phone and get away from it. Um, but I think the reality is a lot scarier than that in that even with a real world cult, you can physically leave and escape. But with something like this, you, it's always going to be there. There's, because everyone uses the computer now. It's like always there. You know, like you said, the YouTube algorithms, unless you, you know, complete, unless you, I guess you'd have to clear your cache and create a completely new YouTube account. But, you know, the, the YouTube algorithms and the Facebook, al- al- the social media algorithms themselves seem complicit in always providing you with the next kick on whatever tunnel you've gotten yourself into. So there's a real scariness there in that they're kind of, you know, you could be anywhere in the world. And as long as you have a phone or you're on a computer, like that stuff is going to be right there at the corner of your awareness. You know, just like a heroin dealer would be. It's like if you're a heroin addict, you're sensitized to be able to see heroin dealers, right? So, um, and I think that in, in many senses, um, you know, internet pornography functions in a similar way. Uh, so, um, so, I, so, so, long way of saying, I think that just to say, oh, it's just YouTube or it's just the internet, and therefore it's not as dangerous as a real world, you know, quote unquote, real world group. Uh, and then, of course, many of these these are real world groups as well um, that they're funneling people towards. But I think that it makes it even more dangerous in a way. Yeah, I think I think you you got it pretty perfectly. Um, you know, the best way I could just summarize it is you you just want more and more and more. And I have had experience in the past, like I said, I partied in my high school and college days, I've had experience with amphetamines and yeah, you're constantly just wanting that even, even I was never a long-term user, but even within the span of an an evening, you want to keep chasing it and go deeper and deeper. Um, It's interesting. You bring up Scientology, you know, the, the, the weird thing about this is though, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like it was constructed where Scientology seems like it was like built to be that way. But with this, it's like this organic thing that kind of, just grew. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm still kind of researching on whether how much of this was intentional, how much of this was unintentional. That's. Um, a, I mean, that's a big open question, right? But I, I think that, and, and I, I think that another reason why I think your your original video was is so important, and I want to talk about this here also, is that you really accurately describe this in a way that the you know the traditional media is completely vulnerable to this in the sense that all they can really do is wring their hands about it and say, oh, the alt-right, the evil Nazis, but they don't understand it. And it's a completely new phenomenon, right? In the sense that it's not, it's not like one group. It's not, oh, Richard Spencer created this or Stefan Molyneux created this and they have their, you know, it's like they're misleading. It's, yes, they, they have created their own things and they are misleading people. But it's this amorphous 
thing of all these overlapping ideologies. And that's why, where I think that people stumble or they say, well, Jordan Peterson is not alt-right. He's not Richard Spencer or Stefan Molyneux is not alt-right. You know, it's like, at least they're not that bad. So they're really different things. But I think the reality is, no, it's like a cluster of all these platforms that have interlinked and metastasized into this cancerous thing that is feeding on, you know, sending people's attention, feeding people's attention from, from node to node. Yeah. And I will have to say, you know, also to go back to your, your, your one point, um, uh, it, well, okay. I'll say this about the overlapping. They go on each other's shows. Jordan Peterson goes on a Stefan Molyneux show quite a bit, or at least he was there for a while. Then they'll go on a Steven Crowder show, or then they'll go on to be Ben Shapiro, or then, you know, Romy Millennial will have Richard Spencer on her show, and then Romy Millennial goes on Steven Crowder's show. So I, I, I do have to say, like, and not, not just the overlapping ideologies. You know, for example, Jordan Peterson talked about cultural Marxism, which is a Nazi conspiracy oh, theory. Right. It's a huge but, but, Yes, yes. And there's even conservatives that are believing that now, right? But just for the simple fact, get away from the, the overlapping just, ideas. Just so we don't lose that. I mean, as somebody who was actually radicalized to be a Nazi, you were saying that Jordan Peterson's cultural, Marx, cultural Marxism, postmodern neo-Marxism thing, is a Nazi thing. So I just want to point that out that this is well, not, yeah. this is not coming from like, Oh, the liberal media is taking him out of context. No. Right. No, this is, you know, that you can go do a quick Google search and figure this out. Cultural Marxism, white supremacy, we can get to into this later. I'd love to white supremacy repackages itself because society is becoming more liberalized. And so what it has to do is it has to dilute its message. This is why they dog whistle. They don't just dog whistle to protect themselves. They dog whistle, to indoctrinate you. And this is how I believed a lot of this stuff because the red pill was taken apart, put into a little glass of Kool-Aid and handed to me and say, here, this won't be so hard to take down. And that's what cultural Marxism is. Cultural Marxism is a repackaging by Pat Buchanan. Maybe someone else did it, but Pat Buchanan popularized it of cultural Bolshevism. What is cultural Bolshevism? Look it up, guys. Death of the West, right? That book he wrote. Uh, the West, I believe. I did not get too much into Pat Buchanan, but I did watch his documentary on cultural Marxism. Okay. Quite a couple a while ago. That was like the early 2000s. Yep. Uh, he was the one that kind of shifted the conservative movement to the right in a lot of ways, which is constantly what these people are trying to do. So, um, But he's also, by the way, who Donald Trump patterned himself after. Donald Trump. Oh, patterned. interesting. Donald Trump basically patterned himself directly. He took Pat Buchanan's platform as outlined when Pat Buchanan ran for president um, 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 in previously, many elections previously. And then he wrote that book, Death of the West, which argues for this whole, um, you know, it, it's kind of his repackaging of Oswald Spengler, uh, who wrote, uh, I can't remember the name of Spengler's original book. Um, anyways, uh, where... So Pat Buchanan did kind of like a Spengler light or a Julius Evola light and repackaged those ideas with this anti-immigrant platform for the U.S. and as a presidential campaign. And so Donald Trump really took that as well as some thoughts by Steve Saylor and other, you know, fringe conservative ideologues who at that time were very much, even Pat Buchanan was, even though he was a mainstream political candidate, he was very much on the fringe of 
mainstream U.S. conservatism and was seen as a, 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 a lunatic, quite rightly, right? And But Trump really just took those ideas and combined them with his personal media bombast and and got, you know, he, he picked up the torch, but the, uh, everything was patterned after Pat Buchanan. Interesting. I'm going to have to research more into that. But yeah, so Pat Buchanan takes cultural Bolshevism, waters it down. Cultural Bolshevism is literally, literally penned by the Nazis. And I don't know if it was intentional or unintentional. With the Nazis, I tend to believe things were intentional because they had Goebbels and all their propaganda masters, right? And so while Hitler might have been a little bit more impressionable with his organic beliefs, people like Goebbels, total psychopaths, man. I would not put it past them to just sit down and write this stuff out like they're telling a story. And cultural Bolshevism is the idea. It's basically the JQ, the Jewish question. Why are all the Jews in power? Why are the Jews in control of the German banks and, you know, the German media. Well, it must be that the communist Jews have subverted our society and that's why we have economic despair. It has nothing to do with World War I or the Treaty of Versailles. No, it's the Jews that tore down our society. Or the fact so, that the Germans started this insane hostility in the first place, right? Yeah. <laughs> fired on I, I, have to, I have to brush myself up with a bit of uh, the, the World War I history, but from, yeah, from what I understand, like they basically took cultural Bolshevism, and I don't know who picked it up, but they turned it into cultural Marxism, and then this, and then they sold it down. So anytime I hear someone say cultural Marxism, I immediately know to question that person. And Jordan Peterson loves cultural Marxism. So there's a great phrase that one of my teachers told me maybe 10, 15 years ago, and she was telling me about her experience. You know, she spent a lot of time in the seventies joining cults to learn what they knew and then and then and then and then jetting as soon as it got weird. And she Oh, well, just to learn from them, you know, like just because sometimes they have knowledge, you know, it's like, well, it's a bunch wacky, you know, what, what can I say? It was, I guess it was the seventies. I wasn't there, you know, I wasn't born in the seventies. I guess people did this kind of thing for fun, but, uh, <clears throat> she, um, she used this phrase that she says is the rhetorical tactic for all, all cults, which is be good, love God, and you'll believe whatever the third thing I say is. <laughs> right so you look at jordan peterson and it's like what's that book it's like like i read this 12 rules for life right is you i read that whole book and there's some there's many like let's be honest like there's many moving passages in there he gets you very he hooks you emotionally there's all this wonderful stuff. advice yeah there's good there's great advice you know like there's advice about taking responsibility he talks about his personal struggles he talks about his daughter's struggles with her 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 bone issues which are very very moving and then of course he throws in all these things from Disney movies, which people are already preconditioned to be hypnotized by because they've grown up with them, You're talking people directly to the level where they're still a five-year-old, and Bible stories. You know, he's not. You know, he's getting people at this very. You know, one of the things if you study hypnosis, people um, uh, often use Disney uh, stories because they know that they can immediately regress somebody to a childlike state. I'm not saying. I, I've, you know, I've read accounts of this. I've never seen anyone do it other than Jordan Peterson, but uh, this is in the hypnotic literature, right? So, Stefan Molyneux does this as well. I don't mean to break your flow, but this is a no. common thing with people. They, uh, Stefan Molyneux, well, what he'll do is he'll take a Zootopia, for example, and I, and I got in the habit of doing this of where I would look at movies and I would try to decode the liberal ideology out of it. 
And so that's what they do. They spin a bunch of stories. And that's why they like to talk about the Matrix and the Red Pill. Or when they want to talk about mass immigration, they'll talk about the Lord of the Rings. And Mordor, they're, the hordes are at the wall and they're coming to destroy you know, Gondor. Uh, they love that because it hooks you. And it's right. so it, relevant to you. And they're also speaking directly to the part of your brain that was conditioned with that deeply when you were seven. They're not using logic, right? They're going straight to your childhood conditioning. It's really, it's very, very sinister. And I'm surprised more people haven't picked up on that. Certainly, I didn't know about Molly New, but I did notice that Jordan Peterson does that both in his book and on his YouTube videos. He goes for the Disney thing. But that aside, you know, like you read that book and you're, you're automatically primed. You're like, you know, like even I was reading this book, you know, and, I, and I'm not a big fan of Jordan Peterson, obviously, but I was reading the book and I was very moved by it. I was like, there's great, you know, there's great, you know, I was reading this book and I'm like, you know what, if I'd read this book when I was 26, 27, or just out of college, even like this book really would have helped me, right? There's a lot of lessons and information in there that I had to learn the hard way that it would have been very helpful to learn from something like that. Now that's so, and then, but he takes you through, it's like, be good, love God, be upright. And then you'll believe whatever the third thing I say is. And then somewhere around page 170, it's, oh, and P.S., your problems are not just your problems. They're created by the postmodern neo-Marxists that are infiltrating every level of society. Whoa, whoa, buddy. <clears throat> I just feel like somebody just keyed my car, you know, like what, you just threw something into the punch there. So He basically just rebranded culture Marxism. <laughs> well, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's the end. And so... Yeah. Do you want to know what, the, do you know what his explanation is for it when people say, tell him it doesn't make sense? Sure. His, ex, his explanation for why post-modern uh, post neo-Marxism doesn't make sense is that well, of course it doesn't make sense. The SJWs are just out of their minds. They're, they're insane, so they have contradictory ideas. Now, what? That's, that is so deceptive and like... It's extremely deceptive because he's, you know, cultural Marxism is not what, not at all what has been said or proposed by people on the left. He's saying, you know, like he, it's obviously a straw man that they've created cultural Marxism as this straw man and, and then they say it doesn't make sense because their ideas don't make sense. Well, but it's not their idea. It's your idea. Right? Yeah, postmodernism and Marxism are contradictory to each other completely. M Marxism is like a material like analysis of the world. And then postmodernism comes in and says, well, we can just break down the structures and define things how we want. That's not, those are contradictory. Right. He, I don't know how he got that. I don't know where he came up with that. Well, I think that you're, it, it comes from the, yes, it comes from the cultural Marxism theory and it comes from this whole conspiracy theory about the Frankfurt School and all that. And it comes from, yes, you can see it in Pat Buchanan, but I don't, you know, yet, but you can take it all the way back scarily enough to the Nazis. And there was a, an individual named Alfred, do you know who Alfred Rosenberg was? No, you're going to have to, we're going to have to, have to, we're going to have a private conversation after this because you've got a lot of resources I need to learn about. Sure. Well, just to mention, I think, because I think this is so important for people to perceive just for context, right? It's, it's, it's crazy how, you know, uh, how, how much people have lost context for things now, mostly because of the algorithm where they get trapped into tunnels. It didn't always used to be like that. 10, 15 years ago, even on the internet, people were consuming information from lots of disparate sources. People still had RSS readers. They were able to see 
opinions from all different sides. Journalism was still functioning properly. You know, people were much better informed and everything has just dissolved and has just uh, largely become controlled by the algorithms. And there's no funding for real journalism to point out this thing, you know, the context, the history of things. So Alfred Rosenberg is kind of like the proto-Jordan Peterson. He was a... He was kind of like the official state philosopher of the Nazi party. And I believe he's the one that he was, uh, and I don't want to get this wrong, so you can check his Wikipedia, but he was very much arguing for this um, uh, cultural Bolshevism theory. And basically making the same... Uh, pretty much the same arguments as Jordan Peterson is now, you know, and because he was, um, because he was so loyal to the Reich, he was given a lot of, uh, he was given a lot of uh, responsibility under Hitler and they, they ended up putting him in charge of a concentration camp. And then I believe he was hung by the allies after the, uh, during the, during the Nuremberg trials. Um, but if you look at his, um, I'm just looking at his, I'm just looking at his, his uh, Wikipedia right now because I want to get this right. It's not that different from a lot of the rhetorical strategies that people are uh, using right now. So uh, anyways, I'm kind of on a tangent here. I'm trying to find like a good passage to read to sum this up, but... Uh, oh yes, he. Uh, let's see. During yeah, he he gave he spoke out about Jewish Marxism and how it was corroding uh, German society from within. So it's this, it's almost this exact same. So he act. when he first ended, he came right out and said it. When he first wrote it down, it sounds like he just yes yeah, Jews, but then he was like, well. Let's call it the Bolshevists. Let's blame it on the Bolshevists. That's so insidious. It's so insidious. It's it's insidious. And, and to bring this back a bit, I think it's why it's so important to have conversations like this. Because I, I got to tell you, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, uh, there's a lot of things about this that I assumed would be common sense to people. For instance, uh, if somebody is doing, you know, these rhetorical strategies about, oh, somehow, you know, poor immigrants who are just trying to, you know, eat are somehow undermining civilization or that trans people are undermining civilization. Uh, it, it seemed to me that these would be obvious rhetorical strategies to people and they would just dismiss them and they'd be immune to them. And shockingly enough, in my conversations with people out in the, in the real world, so to speak, that's not the case. They're kind of like, what's the problem? Jordan Peterson saying, just, you know, stand up straight. What's the issue? And, and so like, I think there's some work to do because things that you think would be obvious and, and even yourself, right? Like you talked about, you talked about your own indoctrination process and now it seems you've done some, some, some outside research or you've gotten a new perspective on it and, and reframed things. But, you know, people are, it's crazy that people don't have the defenses up for this. And one of the really scary things is, you know, have you, by the way, have you ever met, have you met anyone who was in the Holocaust? No, I would love to. If you could ever 
get me a meeting with a Holocaust survivor. I would absolutely love to. Okay, so I have, right? You know, like I've talked to people, you know, I've seen people with tattoos on their arms, you know, like when I was in school, um, you know, a Holocaust survivor came and spoke to us and talked about her experience and being on the trains and being in the camps and how they had, uh, you know, she had to leave tons of it out because we were young, right? There was, you know, there was obviously such things, things of such momentous horror that she couldn't share them, but it was clear by implication how awful it was. And she said things like, you know, like we were on these trains getting shipped across Eastern Europe and I can't tell you what we were eating and I can't tell you what we were drinking. It's like the main thing I remember just my mind trying to wrap around that. Like, what is she talking about? Like some, some, something of such momentous horror. Right. And the, um, and, and, and the thing that always struck me so much when I interacted with people who had been through the Holocaust and I've interacted, and by the way, not, not only with people who have been through the Holocaust, but I have many, many um, uh, Jewish friends who are second generation who grew up in families where their parents had been through the Holocaust and had survived and did not talk about it. And they still carry the trauma. Uh, and it, it's, and it's, it's any, any group that goes through genocide like that, you know, one of the things that we're realizing now with epigenetics is it doesn't just stop with the people who who um, are, are killed or who survive. It's passed down. It goes, you know, the same trauma and anxiety go to the children. So, but one thing that I have always, that always struck me was the need, the burning need to communicate to people that this can't happen again. You know, it's like this, we, we can't, we can't allow this to happen again. And also, the forgiveness there was always this sense of compassion and forgiveness and that i mean what can you what can you even say about that it's almost unimaginable but one of one of the things that i believe it was the i believe i i need to look her up she i saw her on she died a few years ago the woman that that uh came to speak in our class but one of the things she said or that i believe another survivor said is they asked her you know, do you forgive the Nazis? And she said, yes, I absolutely forgive the Nazis. And said, how could, how could you possibly, you know, we're talking about people who mechanistically tortured and annihilated, you know, everything you care, everything you love, all the people you love, you know? And, and she said, you know, I, I'm not forgiving them for them. I'm forgiving them for me. Right. Because yeah. I can't live with that hate. And I think yeah. that there's a powerful message. And, you know, obviously, I don't think that, you know, just attacking people, um, you know, calling people Nazis, calling people racist, you know, it's like, yes, those things are true. But, you know, one thing I think we need to understand in this country is how vulnerable people are. I mean, uh, people are vulnerable from job loss. They're vulnerable from... Uh, communities that have been ravaged by OxyContin and there's a rage and anger. And um, there are in many cases, things that are people have every reason to be enraged about. And rage can be a good thing. It can prompt you to action. It can, it can make you ask new questions like how can I step up and actually help my community? But the problem is that the, 
you know, and if you look at any great leader throughout history, that's usually, you know, uh, the only difference I, I believe between somebody who's a great leader and somebody who becomes a great villain is that they ask them, they, they may be confronted with the same things, but they, they ask themselves different questions about that, them, what's happening, why things are happening and what they can do about it. And the, so yeah, I, I, I kind of lost my train of thought. But, but well, I like, I like where you were going there is that, yeah, like, um, you know, first of all, I, the way I look at it, when it comes oh, to giving up one thing, it just that, that it's so what's happening right now is people are suffering in this country. They have been suffering since the economic crash. And before that, they've been suffering, particularly in the heartland in, in, and in a lot of the places in America that quite frankly, a lot of the people on the coast have forgotten about. And, and it, West Virginia is a perfect example yeah. right? and people have lost or Detroit. Right. And, and it's not just white communities. It's across the board and people have lost their jobs. You know, manufacturing jobs have gone, all, all the auto jobs went, the farming jobs went, you know, now it's all these huge farming consortiums like Monsanto and things like this have, um, you know, which ironically is owned by Bayer, who you know, who uh, is responsible for producing Zyklon B gas in the Holocaust. But uh, now they're producing our food. That's just an aside. But the there are real, real problems in this country, and and you know, of course, the pushing of OxyContin into and and the, the heroin problem throughout so much of this country that people have fallen victim to, and. You know, and I, I agree that when you look at, for instance, you know, for instance, in the in the 2016 election, when Hillary Clinton stood up and called people deplorables, you know, my reaction was just how how dare you, how dare you? These are American people. You know, it's like it's like the job of a leader is not to dismiss people and say they're less than. You know, it's like now now you may say their behavior is deplorable. That's understandable. The behavior is deplorable, but ultimately the job of people, particularly somebody who's, who, who's president, by definition, somebody who wants to be president should be looking after their constituents. And so the thing is that people are, are very vulnerable. I think they're going to become even more vulnerable as automation replaces jobs, particularly trucker jobs, which is the number one job in America. People don't have jobs. They're not going to be able to eat. And the scary thing is that groups like the alt-right are proliferating in this situation and giving people an easy option, somebody to blame, a way to say, a way of suddenly a sense of family, a sense of connection, uh, just in the same way that, you know, ISIS uh, uh, has in the, the wreckage of the Middle East, right? I think it's, I think it's the same. And that's a very, very scary situation. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, so um, the alt right, this this is just breeding ground for not just for cults in general. For any of these, they're all cults. ISIS is a cult. The alt right's a cult. Um, you know, they are political in nature, but I'm you know Scientology had political aspects to it as well. Um, but yeah, so they play on the their target demographic, and then they play on the issues that they're having. So yeah, so ISIS plays on it for Muslims, and they probably target their race and their ethnicity. And talk about that, and they 
They do the same thing the alt-right does where they give you a sense of pride. They tell you you are a strong people that has a long history. And when you're hearing this and you're, you know, working in a factory 40 hours a week, barely able to afford things, you have medical debt, you know, you, everything around you falling apart. You hear people like Hillary Clinton who are Democrats, who you would think of as liberals, you know, calling you a deplorable. And then the, and the alt-right comes in and starts saying things like, well, you know, the opiate crisis, you know, you're experiencing white death. They're killing you off and they don't talk about it and they don't help you. You know, Michael Moore had a, if you watch his, I forget what it was, he was up on stage uh, doing kind of a monologue show. He talked about that, like why people voted for Trump. And I feel like most people don't understand why people voted for Trump. Most people think white, rural, working class people voted for Trump because they're racist. And that might be true for some of them, maybe even many of them, but that is not the fundamental reason they voted for him. They voted for him because he came in and spoke to them when no one would. And he told them the things that they wanted to hear. And then afterwards he did nothing to fulfill in those promises or actually help those people. But the alt-right, they're a lot more insidious than Trump is that they say, well, come with us, brother. Trump might've left you behind, which now the alt-right has actually dumped Trump. They don't like Trump. They've picked up Andrew Yang now. Hmm. Um, and the yeah, rights are <laughs> well, we can talk about that, and I can tell you why Spencer it came out of his own mouth. Okay. Uh, yes, I, I, uh, I, why did tell me tell me now actually because just to preface, yeah, yeah. So that I, so I, Spencer I, said I, on a, Yang has some great ideas, and you know I think that universal basic income is a necessity to keep this country. Yeah. So, but I've seen the alt right has attached themselves to him. So, so what's happening there? Yeah. So basically, to, to sum up the other point, the alt right gives you a purpose and said that we are pushing forward, brother. You don't have to worry. We might not be winning now, but we are pushing towards a greater future, and we will win. And so, the Andrew Yang thing to go over on that is uh, so the alt right. Anyone watching, you have to take what they say with a grain of salt. They have no problem lying, but they are also when you get down to the very bottom of the funnel and listen to the true alt writers, the Jared Taylors. The JFs, well, not J- JF, not so much, but the, the, especially Richard Spencer. They are surprisingly honest and they strategize live on YouTube calls. And they um, talked about Andrew Yang and Richard Spencer says, you know, as a, as a movement, we've taken a lot of heat for being too exclusive, for focusing on our white identity too much. And he said that I think it would be a good thing for us to embrace Yang. Uh, we could uh, excuse my language, but I'm quoting Richard Spencer. We could wrap ourselves in the fortune cookie of Andrew Yang and use him as a vehicle to weather the storm forward. That's part of it. It's so, so basically that's them saying, well, how can you call us racist? We voted for the, for the Chinese man. Uh, this is the ways that they constantly use minorities and other groups that they ultimately want to kill as a way to, Smoke screen. When you say ultimately want to kill, can you speak about that specifically? Well, because that's something you'll never I've hear it out of their. I've seen they hide it on Discord and things like that, but their rhetorical strategy is very much to hide that. So I'd very much like your opinion on what the deal with that is. It's hard to tell because they cloud themselves in irony. But what they will do is you will never hear that from Mike Enoch. JF, Eric Stryker, I don't mean to name drop these people, but it's, it's good to know, be aware of who they are. You will never hear that come from their mouths. They denounced Charlottesville. They denounced the Christchurch shooting. They don't like these things because they're bad optics. And the alt-right is very pragmatic in their approaches to things and their tactics. But if you go to the comment sections on their YouTube videos that they make, if you go to the comment sections on poll... Or if you get, I've, I never went into their Discord chats, but I'm assuming it's in there in much more detail. 
they have jokes about gassing the Jews. They make memes about hanging blacks. They make memes about basically eliminating all the people that they don't want. I've gotten this myself. I'm now at IDF plant by the Israeli government, and I'm apparently I'll be hung right next to Natalie. Contrapoints. Hmm. So they very much will use the people that they see lower on the hierarchy to expand their message. And then if they ever get into power, they'll do the same thing the Nazis did. Do you think around them all the video of that? I mean, like what are we really talking about when we talk about the alt right? Is it, you know, is it actually just, you know, 50 parents, basement dwellers or what actually is it in the real world? I think this is an important question to ask. It's hard to tell um, because they're so, they're so crypto, but I think uh, we have, First of all, we have, yeah, there are other basement dwellers, but they push the propaganda, they push the, mes- they push the message. And then whenever you get into the real world, it's very clear that we, after Charlottesville, a lot of them revealed themselves. And we've also had movements like Identity Europa, which have been, they made themselves a little too obvious with that one, right? And they have pushed political movements. American patriots or something like that. Yeah, well, yeah, well, well that's, that's the new fascism. And... Um, their uh, golden child now is Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson is like carving out their little third position mm-hmm. and pushing this patriotic fascism. Uh, so they, uh, they have political movements in the real world and they, they pushed hard this past midterm to get their people into office. Most of them did not make it because they were exposed by the media. Thank God. But Steve King, we got him, right? We got yeah. Steve King. So, they do have political sway. And what the alt-right does is the alt-right realizes, they will tell you, yes, we don't have much power now. That's why, don't guys, don't go out there and use guns. Don't go out there and do that because the government will just stamp us out. They want to shift the conversation. They want to shift the Overton window to the right. And that's what they're constantly trying to do. And they do that. Okay, through this the- is a really, really important concept. And I've, I've, this is critical. I've, I've explained this to people, but I'd like to hear... This is this is another reason why people people don't understand this strategy, which is why they're so vulnerable to, you know, people who seem more palatable to the mainstream, right? So, if you could explain this strategy, it'd be very helpful. Yeah, well, I mean, just look at the way it manifests itself. I know conservatives. I have conservative friends that talk about things like cultural Marxism. I have conservative friends who discuss these things. And so now it's slowly getting planted in their brain. They're getting primed because all this is marketing. It's a business model. It's very insidious. It's very funny that a lot of these people are capitalists, but at the same time, yeah, they're pushing a, a marketing strategy. And so they'll use these terms, these diluted terms to sort of red, red pill people on different issues. And they push their memes as hard as they can. They'll talk about, oh, have you ever noticed that 13% of the people commit 50% of the crime in this country referring to black people. And so they're constantly trying to use their message to get it into your head that, oh, you should believe what we believe because this is the reality of the situation, shifting it to the right, shifting you know everyone to the right. And Trump, that the reason they love Trump so much and the reason they memed him so hard is because Trump massively shifted us to the right. He took the conservatives, and if you know any Trump supporters, I don't know if you do, I don't know where you live, but they have gone completely off the rails of what a normal conservative would have been 10, 15 years ago. Oh, so. and now, now, well, they, they've kind of abandoned, they've gotten really hard into the immigration 
stuff. They've gotten really hard into uh, preserving their culture. They, uh, the Islamophobia has been fanned up a lot. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're even starting to see like people like Ben Shapiro and Steven Crowder are kind of shifting in this direction as well. Although they're, they're a lot more moderate than others. So one, one thing that I, one, another thing that I, uh, if I'm correct about the Overton window strategy and the, the whole, you know, I've seen them talking about metapolitics and taking ideas from, you know, left tactics, like all of the stuff used by, uh, what was his name? Saul Alinsky in the, in the sixties, right? I've seen the European fascist groups talking about that quite a bit, but the, um, the other thing is, it's not just dropping things into the mainstream conversation. It's proposing ideas that are as extreme as possible so that the ideas that are filtering into the center seem tame by comparison. Oh, yes, yes. So, so if I may. Dragging the window from the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a common marketing strategy that you'll do. Uh, I'm, the, the, the actual term uh, draws a blank on me right now. But what you basically do is there's two ways that you can convince someone of something. You can spoon feed it to them over time, or you come out with a very bombastic statement that's obviously ridiculous that no one would believe, but you do that and you do that on a semi-consistent basis. And then after a while, it makes the things that are a little less extreme seem more moderate. And so that's why there's like the Overton window is the idea that there's a center but the center is arbitrary. It shifts. So, right. so people, right. but for some people, we see, but for we, some we reason, saying, yeah, we're, we're, we're gonna, we got to argue. Like we see people being like very like, oh well, you know, we, you know, both sides are extreme, or they're arguing from yes. the center. Like you're getting pulled. You're getting yes. What's called the center is being engineered for you, and that's why I think it's very important. You know, where you'll always have debates with people online. Will be like, oh, Jordan Peterson's not alt right. Well, right. Like technically, no, he's not right. Technically. But I think that anything, this is why people need to understand that there's a spectrum and there's these interlocking groups. And it's ultimately anything that is yanking you in that direction is just the answer just has to be no. Well, why no? Let's talk about my ideas. No. Like, no, I'm not saying censorship, but it's just like the answer has to be no. It's like, well, what about free speech? Don't you yes, want Yes, yes, yes. No, I don't want to hear it. I understand who you are. I see you. I know where you're coming from. No, that, that, those ideas are not conducive to, to us, you know, growing as a species or helping anybody. It's just like, you're like, yeah, I understand your ideas. Yes, you know, like, yes, you have, you have free speech, but it's like, I don't want to hear it. It's like the answer is no, because as soon as, the tendency, as you know, the, the tendency psychologically with people is as soon as they get into this thing of, oh, well, let's just have a debate. The, the automatically, you know, debate is like negotiation, right? When you nego- enter into a negotiation with somebody and you say, I think that I should pay $100 for this mahogany table. And they say, no, I think you should pay $200 for this mahogany table. Like automatically, you're going to end up at somewhere around 150 bucks for the table, right? It's just a given. It's like you've entered the game. So the only way to win the game is just don't participate. It's like, no, I know what I believe. My ideas are correct. People should not be judged on the cult of their skin. People should not be genocided. There should not be some type of hierarchy in society. Like all this is horseshit. We fought a war that more than 50 million people died in to prove that this is horseshit and to stamp it out. It's like, no, we've been over this. No, but, right? But you seem, I don't know, but you're being kind of unreasonable. Maybe we should have the talk and like really kind of work out 
issue by issue and see where we really lie. People like to be in the center because it makes them feel like they're reasonable, right? And a Peter Coffin, uh, a, a fellow Brezhnev, by the way, they, 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 it's also the whole centrist argument. I just made this point on Twitter. I was fighting somebody on Twitter before we did this, God forbid. Um, and, and people say like, oh, well, we should be in the center and you know see both sides. It's like, no, the center is a position of cowardice. What the center really is, is that you're scared and you want people to like you. You don't want to disagree with anyone and you want to be safe because you're in the crowd. It's like, well, by the way, how did, how did the Holocaust happen? It wasn't just because of the agitators. It was because everyone in the center saying like, well, this is kind of, maybe this will end soon. You know, like, I don't want to rock the boat. That's why it happened. So, so, uh, so yeah, so, uh, I, just to give a quick shout out, uh, Peter Coffin, a fellow bread tuber. I don't know if I can call myself that yet. By the way, I what, have what to is bread tuber? you talking about? Uh, so, so bread tuber. Uh, it's a kind of a communist joke that I believe Peter Coffin came up with. Uh, he, I think he came up with the term bread pill. It was a uh, kind of a play on red pill, but it was basically like de-radicalizing people. But then at the same time, they have a lot of uh, communist and leftist beliefs. Didn't, didn't uh, bread, wasn't bread pill meant Christianity originally, didn't it? I don't know, but I'm t- I just know it in the context of where Peter Coffin came up with it. He's a YouTuber. He makes great work, and he talks about the Overton window and fishhook theory, where the right will always kind of pull people in the center back over to the right because that's just how they because they're the ones that are going to say the bombastic messages and use the dirty tactics. But um, yeah, I don't know. People like to be in the center, and just as a, like a little anecdote. So this experience for me um, has just skyrocketed out of control <laughs> in a sense. And so I've been wanting desperately to play catch up. You know, one of the things I had to do was quit my job to do this full time because there was just too much work to be done. And I know that this is going to be worth it. So I'm taking that risk, right? But uh, I, I you're, you're making YouTubes or you have some type of YouTube effort. videos. Yeah, I have a lot of ideas on YouTube videos. I want to help de-radicalize people out of these movements. And I have a lot of resources and a lot of people behind me that want to push me. But, um, you know, to not to not come off the wrong way, I don't want to ask my audience for money quite yet because I've not given them any content that I think is worth anything. They loved my video, my first video, but that's not enough. So I, was, I went out into the world, um, into my own social circles to look for funding. Uh, I was like, guys, I just need like $5,000 to get me some camera equipment, pay my rent for a month or two in the, you know, in the place I'm going to. And then I can really push this movement. I had, I had business, not business contacts, but I had a, uh, people in Charlottesville that were business owners in the community. I talked to liberals in my community. I talked to all these centrists and I said, guys, I showed them the video. I gave them the pitch. I said, this is a movement that we have a lot of momentum behind. I have a team behind me of volunteers. And then there's other YouTubers and Twitch streamers and people that want to push this. I said, give me your support and I won't let you down. And and what I got from all of them was, I don't want to get involved. I don't like to deal with controversy. I kind of just want to be, you know, in the center. And I thought how, and I'm literally telling you guys. Uh, yeah, that's how the Holocaust happened here. That's how it could happen here. <laughs> yeah, and I and I pleaded them. I was like, guys, I was basically. I mean, I didn't consider myself this, but I was basically an ex-Nazi. I'm telling you from my own mouth how dangerous this is. Please help me fight this. I don't know. Um, you know, I just don't have the time. 
maybe, yeah. And they just blew me off. Mm. And, I, it, and especially the woman in Charlottesville, it just totally dumbfounded me. I'm like, this was in your own community. That's and I had had discussions with her, how, it, how that horrified her. That event horrified her. It shocked her. But even still, she was not willing to help because she said, I don't want to get, I said, we can donate anonymously, all that. No, I don't want to get involved with controversy. Man, so this is really... Leftists are the only people I know that are helping fight. Le- it's, it's all leftists that want to fight this. It's just like World War II. The communists are going to have to... Communists, communists, whatever people call them, you know, it's, it's crazy. Well, this, and, and this is, um, yeah, and, and it's amazing how... So Garibald's, if you look at Garibald's, right? Like, I believe there's a Garibald's quote, and I may get this wrong, so please, you know, look it up. But he said something like, you know, there's a couple classic ones where he said, one of them is if you repeat something enough, people believe it becomes the truth, right? Which certainly the Republicans used in the, in the second Iraq war. But the, um, one of the other things that he said is, um, man, I'm blanking on it now. Uh, what the hell? Okay, I suddenly blanked on it. But the, I think the, the scary thing is the large majority of people, oh, I remember, sorry, it was that, that we will accuse our enemies of doing what we want to do to them. Right? Yeah. It was something Projecting. like, and yeah, but yeah. like consciously, you know, like Garibald's, you know, extremely conscious, you know, like consciously doing what he was doing. And that is what we see. I'm going to try and look this up because it's worth uh, getting the right. Yeah, what, while you're looking this up, I'll give you a little, uh, a little acronym, or I think it's an acronym, right? Uh, gaslight, obstruct, project. These are the tactics these people use. I will let you figure out what that acronym. <laughs> I'll let you figure that one out. Uh, and gaslight, obstruct, project. Aha! Uh-huh. Yes. And who, who coined this? I don't know who coined it. I heard it from a friend on Discord, to be honest with you. And I thought it was quite clever. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. I'm not sure I can find the actual quote, but it was, it was something to that effect. It's, you know, we're, we will... Oh, wait, here. Let's see. It's on Stack Exchange, of all things. Um, oh, there's one from the NERM. So he's quoted publicly often as saying, accuse the other side of that which you were guilty but the closest quote appears to be the cleverest trick used in propaganda against Germany during the war was to accuse Germany of what our enemies themselves were doing uh, from the Nuremberg rally in 1934. So, um, so at least he's aware of this dynamic and that's definitely what they did. Right. And it was, you know, in the, it's exactly what, the alt-right is doing, you know, all the way from, you see Jordan Peterson saying all of a sudden, you know, by the way, it's like, you know, we got Trump into office. We got, a, 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 you know, the worst president in U.S. history, somebody who's directly enacting authoritarian policies and targeting whole groups of people. Uh, and it's just a total uh, betrayal of everything it means to be an American, um, let alone everything that we fought for in, in World War II and all, you know, and, and it's just a total betrayal of the American spirit. And then what do we have? We have these professional rhetoricians like Jordan Peterson saying like, oh, no, no, no. Actually, the problem is leftist college students who want to be called by pronouns. And, the, the, you know, and it's like, what? No, 
the problem is the and and Jordan Peterson like oh college students who have blue hair are leading us to the gulag. And one thing that I think is very telling about Jordan Peterson is when it was revealed that infants were literally being put in concentration camps, you know, migrant children at the border and being put into camps across the country uh, and separated from their parents. What did Jordan, and Jordan Peterson, who claims he studied extremism his whole life and is, is fighting the war against extremism, what did Jordan Peterson say about this? Nothing. Nothing. And it was straight back to college students with blue hair who want to be called by pronouns are leading us to the gulag. And this is classic misdirection. And it's a key, you know, and, and we take this all the way down to the extreme alt-right where they're saying, oh, white genocide, you know, they're trying to replace us. Well, you're accusing them of what you want to do to them. I, don't, I actually have to push back against your terminology there. You said white genocide. That's not politically correct. The proper term is the great replacement. That's the term that they've now shifted to. So just but to clear that up. But, so, but meaning that white genocide is always the phrase that they have used. But then, yeah, they were well. They, I remember when I was watching Steph, he was him, him and Lauren Southern were using white genocide, and I watched them change it to the great replacement. Once again, the rebranding of re- white supremacy to dilute the red pill to make it more palatable to the liberals. That's ultimately what they're doing. They're trying to pull the conservatives and the liberals onto their side. Was this another Spencerism? I don't know. Spencer did it, but Stefan and um, and it's hard to tell sometimes where these things originate. But Stefan and Lauren were. Uh, pushing that. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson, he is so deadly. And Jordan Peterson was a hard person for me to give up when I came back to the other side because I was like, well, what's so wrong with him? What's so wrong with him? Because he has such a, he's, he has such a high power level. And just to use my own, you know, kind of internet slang, he is like one of the final bosses in the fight, right? He has so many tools at his disposal. you can't really pin him down. I mean, you watch those, I know you watch his debates and his interviews. And besides from who was the girl on the BBC, um, the, uh, she, or no, not BBC, uh, the guardian, I think it was, she was excellent. She really knew how to take him down. But like, you know, you get the, um, Kathy Newman. Is that Mm -hmm. who? He, he, he mopped the floor with her just rhetorically. He mopped the floor with her and it was because she would try to say things. So you're saying, that uh, I think, I don't know if she said it. You're saying you're a Nazi, but she said something ridiculous like that. And he said, well, actually, no, you're taking me out of context. And I think we need to back up here. And if you'd actually listen to what I say, I think that you'd, you know, we'd have a much better conversation. He always does this, always does this. And, his, his, and his, the lobsters, as I call them, do it as well. His followers do it as well. Anytime somebody, anytime I, I criticize Peterson, either online or in the real world, they will immediately say, you're taking him out of context. Really? Actually, I think you are. I think you don't understand the full context of the things that he's saying. You don't understand the context of the history of the cultural Marxist conspiracy theory and how it links to the Nazis. You don't understand the context of, let's say, for instance, who funds Jordan Peterson. We see him always retweeting. Now, this is alleged. I don't know. But we always see him retweeting uh, Koch Brothers initiatives. You know, And, and you, we see that he's cozied up to the... Canadian and U.S. governments, that he's buddy-buddy with Donald Trump Jr. and is obviously trying to get his stuff enacted into public policy and has uh, uh, political ambitions, if not to actually be in office, then certainly to have the ear of the people in power, which he clearly does. And uh, this is very, very sinister. And one, one thing that I always tell people is, you know, prior to the Trump cycle, 
I don't know how much you paid attention to this, but prior to the Trump cycle, when I was working really, really heavily as an investigative journalist, you know, like there was a, so much pushback against corporate control in this country. There was uh, Standing Rock, right? There, you know, WikiLeaks, Snowden, you know, there was a, a really frightening time for the people in power. And I think that what they actually did, I would not be surprised. I don't know for sure, but I would not be surprised if particularly a lot of these big oil concerns and uh, potentially intelligence agencies. I don't know. Uh, you know, I would not be surprised if they just engineered this alt-right thing as a distraction and as a way to, you know, to, to siphon off that anger. I think that Jordan Peterson is the best thing that could have happened to them because whether he was created intentionally or not, that he siphoned off all of that anger into, oh, clean your room. You know, which is the same game that COINTELPRO played with the counterculture in the 60s, where they said, oh, no, don't protest. Don't fight the powers that be. Don't protest U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Take psychedelics. Meditate. Get a guru. You know, like listen to Beatles albums. Like go internally. Yeah. That's where you can fix the problems of the world, which is exactly what Jordan Peterson is doing uh, with this whole clean your room thing. Um, but... Uh, Anyways, so, and, and the other troubling thing about that is, you know, whether you're aware of this or not, this is something that I'm sure Christian Piccolini can speak to quite a bit, is that it's very much a public record that in the, the original or the white nationalist 1.0 movement, as they call it in the 80s, you know, it, which resulted in Timothy McVeigh, which people seem to have completely forgotten about. You know, I remember that happening. It was, it, it was, you know, that when Timothy McVeigh blew up the Oklahoma City building, that was the biggest act of domestic terrorism ever prior to 9-11. And it was shocking. Uh, you know, all these people were murdered. And the during that time, I think after that, there's a good documentary about this on Netflix about the McVeigh and that time period. After that time period, a lot of the skinheads and the Nazis and people who were around William Pierce and people like that uh, purposefully rebranded themselves and put on suits. And a lot of them purpose became ghost skins and, and purposefully got jobs in, in law enforcement and um, you know, potentially government, but certainly law enforcement and the military. Is this, is, is, are you aware of this history at all? Yeah. So, and so we saw, for instance, and Christian Piccolini pulled, uh, showed this, there was, this is quite terrifying, around, I think, eight, eight or nine months ago, there was something, the Department of, or it was either the Department of Homeland Security or ICE, it's somewhere back on my Twitter feed, and it's on Christian Piccolini's Twitter feed, uh, published something where they put out, put out a statement about the border security and there was something that sounded exactly like the 14 words in there you know the 14 words i've heard them i actually heard them after the new zealand shooting he had them written on his gun or we had uh the whatever the acronym for it so that was that was the original rallying cry of the first white you know the first skinheads in the 80s not first but that wave of them same rallying cry with a great replacement right their main same ideas Right. And, and then the other thing is there was something like the, I believe ICE put out a statement where they were asked like, oh, how many, how many children are, you know, how many migrants are in custody? How many children are in custody? And they said, we have 1,488 children in custody. 
Right. Hey guys. So this whole, and a lot of this was reported again on, reported on again by the Intercept and other sources after um, Trayvon Martin happened and that whole, you know, and the riots and all the tragedy around that. And uh, a lot of this, and, and when we were having this big national debate about, you know, why are all these young black men being stopped and shot by the police? It's a real thing, right? And, you know, one of the things that, things that people were pointing out and reminding people of is like, you know, hey, like the whites, a lot of these white supremacists directly got into police jobs and military. And that's one of the reasons why when you see the alt-right conspiring and things like this online, and it just seems like basement dwellers, it actually is a lot more frightening than that because, you know, we're talking about people in the military, we're talking about people potentially in police and outside of, and, and I, I guess a broader question that I should ask also is at least from your perspective, what is their end game? What is their goal? I mean, they talk about creating the, whatever, like the white ethno state in the Pacific North. Oh. Stuff. Just like the ultimate, and just real quick, there's a there's a really good song about the Dead Kennedys. I, I recently got back into my love for the Dead Kennedys, as you can imagine. And there's a really good song because I fought the law and I won. And at the end, he says, "I fought the law," or no, "I am the law," and I won. Right? And so it's about the KKK, like just like you said, infiltrating the police. So the ultimate goal, if we want to get past the pragmatics of like electing maybe a Chinese man or the pragmatics of like whatever their strategies are. If we want to just get to the end nitty gritty goal, the end game, it's to have a white ethno state. It's not really much more complicated than that. I can tell you why they believe that, why they want that, but that's just what it is. They want an ethno state and then whatever financial system or whatever, they debate on that amongst each other. Eric Stryker is a socialist. Richard Spencer is a sock dem. Uh, Jean-Francois Jarepi, JF, he's a libertarian. They argue about that stuff just like any other political group does. But what they all agree on is they want a white ethnostate. They want a homeland for their people. Which is they define- the fast track to uh, genetic suicide <laughs> and inbreeding. But, uh- right. And oh, but they're going to get this. The, the thought leaders will tell you, well, we will get this peacefully. We're going to give all the black people a th- hundred thousand dollars and they're going to leave the country. All right, dude. Okay. So what, what is Richard Spencer's deal, by the way? He strikes me as kind of, he strikes me as a rich kid. He strikes me as, you know, very sociopathic, you know, like he seems truly without empathy, but what is his deal? Like, okay. And, and my, and my big question also is where did that guy come from? You know, like, because he just came out of nowhere and it's like, what, you know, was this guy groomed by some other white supremacist group? Was he, you know, how did, where did, where did, what, what, it, what is a Richard Spencer and why is, why does he constantly seem to get media attention? Why is he, you know, he seems to be untouchable on Twitter. Um, he, he doesn't, never seems to go away. Like what, what's the deal with that guy? Yeah. So, um, when I was in this movement, I did not consider myself alt-right. Although anybody on the other side of the political spectrum would have saw it that way. I consider myself alt-light, which is basically focusing less on race, more on IQ and culture. People like, if you want a, a person that you can point to, I was basically Lauren Southern. I was the male version of Lauren Southern. Um, so, uh, and I looked up to Lauren Southern, um, I had a, quite a, an infatuation with Lauren. So Lauren, if you want to hit me up in DM so I can de-radicalize you, please do. 
Yeah, I'm gonna bread pill Lauren so she can oh come God. back from that other side. Um, yeah, so so uh, the person I listened to the most was Jared Taylor. He's the one I took the most seriously. Uh, Richard just talked about the ethno state too much for me. I was just never. I sympathized with an ethno state. I thought they had the right to do that. But anyway, uh, to explain Richard Spencer, from what I know about him, he did kind of come out of nowhere. Now he coined the term the alt right with his website. This is why the, alt, the term the alt-left is nonsense because the alt-right is an actual term that he coined. That's his website. I think it was 2014, 2015 he made the website. Uh, he was writing on the website. I think I don't know if he was a contributor on the Daily Stormer or not. Um, but I don't know too much about Richard's past. From what I can tell, Richard... From what I've heard, Richard kind of had a trouble getting a career started. Um, and... I don't, and, and Richard's a very intelligent man. He reads a lot about history. And I think that he probably somehow picked up these ideas and then he kind of believed this idea. Richard believes what he says. Richard's a very honest person when he's not hmm. playing tactics, right? Now he'll lie to, he'll lie, you know, for tactics. Like he'll vote for someone like Yang. But if you get Richard in a room where he feels comfortable, he will tell you exactly what he believes. Um, cause he believes it. Um, but so I don't know too much about where Richard came from, but what I've heard is that Richard had trouble getting a career started and that this has kind of jettisoned him forward. You asked, how does he keep getting into the media? You probably know more about than I do. Uh, how'd Trump keep getting into the media? He was controversial. He was good for ratings. People tuned in to watch it. The media is just about making money from what I can tell. Uh, I'm very much into alternative media, but it seems like we, we don't have, you're right, journalism's failing. And when you start to get to these little outlets for journalism, they don't have proper journalism. So we're in a sad state of like how we get the news out there right now. I don't know who, yeah, it's like you can't really trust the big outlets because they've kind of been corrupted by the money, but then you can't trust the small outlets because they don't have the resources and the expertise to actually do on the ground journalism. So Right, and it didn't always used to be like this. And and one movie that I like to point people to is Spotlight. Are you aware of this movie? No, I'm going to watch that. So Spotlight is a movie that was done about... There was an investigative journalism team that um, broke broke the whistle on child sex abuse in the Catholic Church in Boston. Oh, with um, Mark Ruffalo. I, I know what you're talking about. And so that, that movie is really instructive to watch because what you see in that movie is they paid a team of, I believe, five journal, four or five journalists for a year to work on that story. And they just sat in a room and following up leads and going through files and, and do, they worked on one story for a year. And so, so the outcome was, I think, a series of two or three articles and it won the Pulitzer and it broke open the sexual abuse in the church in Boston, which, you know, was, had, had not, you know, was tab- nobody knew what was going on and, or they weren't talking about it at least. And it's crazy to watch that because, you know, I'm a journalist. I've worked in journalism for quite a while. Um, I come from a journalistic family, you know, and so I've seen the progression of journalism for many, many decades and it's changed, you know, and now it used to be journal newspapers were big buildings where people, journalists were on staff and they had the resources because their revenue model was classified ads, and, which has all been taken by Craigslist and also giving doing ads in the newspapers, which has all been taken by 
you know, it well became Google ads and things like that. But now the Apple has blocked those on the iPhone. So they've cut off that revenue stream. So, but there was that people actually got their news from the newspaper. And so there was revenue to do things like pay journalists to actually do journalism. Who would think? Now, I mean, particularly since the Gawker era, what journalism has become in places like Vice and Gawker, and I work for Vice and Vice is great, and, and but just there is a model that affects the entire industry is that journalism is so unprofitable because really what they're looking at is it's clicks, it's clicks driven. They just need the busy underlying business models. We just need people to click on the articles and then click on an ad, hopefully, uh, with the understanding that it's probably going to be like, you know, 0.5% or 1% of the people who click the, who read the article might click an ad. So they need to get a huge, it's like you said with a funnel, they need to get a huge audience. And the way they do that is by publishing shocking headlines and things that, and that's not new in journalism, but it's to such an extent that, and it's just not profitable to run stories. So, you know, it has to be added up with lots and lots and lots and lots of content. So what they do is they get, what these companies do is they get either interns or people just out of college who are making pennies and they just sit them in a co-working space where there's four or five, you know, snarky college kids on laptops and they have to churn out 10 or 11 pieces of content a day and they're just reblogging things. And it's just, you know, that's not all journalism, but by and large, the business model is failing and it's the fault of big tech companies. Um, and uh, particularly Facebook and Google, honestly, you know, and it's their fault in terms of how they've like, how the digital advertising is just yeah, kind of they've taken over the everything. advertising. Well, I, look, I was, I was pursuing, I was, I wanted to get out of blue collar work and I was pursuing digital marketing. That's how I came, that's how I came up with the idea of the funnel for the alt, right? I'm glad, I'm glad this happened because I kept thinking about it. I was like, dude, it's so it's such a crappy job. Like you just have to sit there and pump out this cheap content that, yeah. like, yeah, it's and it's garbage. Society and and one of the you know if you look at if you look at American history, you know the 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 great bulwarks against fascism have been functioning journalism, a functioning middle class, and honestly, the church. Right, really functioning religion. And we don't have functioning religion by and large at all anymore, right? That's all God. And the um, and 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 whether I'm not saying people should believe one thing or another, but what I am saying is, you know, and there are many things. Obviously, you know, we just talked about childhood you know, sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. I mean, there are many things wrong. You know, don't you know, don't get me started with organized religion. But the reality is that when people lose that sense of common shared place. When they just like you did, when they when they lose that common bond with other people in the real world and the sense that other people care about them and they care about other people, it gets very dark very quick. You know, and just going to Starbucks to hang out, just maybe work next to people on your laptop, does not replace that. I'm sorry, right? So, and the internet does not replace it; it pathologizes it. So, as you know, right? So, so that's gone. The you know journalism is gone, and the middle class is gone. You know, it used to be there was when there was a functioning middle class, when people had the ability. Well, let me just put it this way. If you had been through college and it was clear to you that you just like it was in the 70s, that you could put a down payment on a house right after school, that you could afford that, that you could marry your high school sweetheart, that you could have a job. You could even, let's say, a trade job. 
right? I mean, this was the case in the 70s when it was still unionized. You could get a trade job and afford all these things right out of college, you know, or even with a high school education. You know, if you had had all that, if you had had the ability to build that, would you have, you know, how vulnerable would you have been to these ideas, right? So it's a real question. You can always fall into these ideas, right? There's there's normal family men that became Scientologists, but I think you're exactly right. Whenever the sense of nihilism and dread that my generation has, both because of the financial crisis and the Iraq wars, we grew up thinking, well, nothing's possible. At the same time, we have a lot of optimism, but it, there's always this nihilism in the back of our heads. And I speak to a lot of people in my generation, they have this. Um, and, and, and that's what these people play on. And so, yeah, if I had had that vision for the future and that um, promise of a future, yeah, I might have held on. I might have, I don't know, I might have pushed harder. I don't know. But it's like when you're pushing into the dark, you don't want to go too fast. Like, yeah, it's... Well, go ahead. Would would you want to talk about real quickly about the occultism that's going on within the old, right? I can fill yes, you in on that real fast. Yes, I do. Okay. Let me, so, let me, before we get there, I want to, before, because I'm going to lose the thread if I, I'm going to forget if we, if we go forward. Uh, but yes, let's definitely talk about that. But one thing, what I want to kind of get dropped to the core of this a little bit, just in speaking to you, it seems like the, the vulnerability points for you were a sense of isolation, a sense of not belonging, uh, both from your, uh, from your upbringing, from the sense of not having family, uh, and uh, of not, and then and then of being in an isolated place when uh, after leaving school, right? So it seems to me that the, the the keys for you were isolation. You know, it's it's like these are the keys for, for you know. It's like, or what, let me just say what you were looking for, what was being offered to you, was a sense of family, a sense of being connected to other people a sense of belonging, a sense of mattering, a sense of saying like, hey, you know, just because of, in this case, just because of the color of your skin, you're one of us and you have a family and it speaks to your identity and your your background and all of this. And, and, and your history, you go back, you're a long, you come from a long line of, you know, heroes and yeah. So is that, is that an accurate? That's exactly it. Awesome That's thing? exactly it. Mm-hmm. So, I couldn't so, put it any better. So then the real question is, how can we offer that in a real way for people that is not destructive? Because honestly, you know, so many people in this country, and, and not just young people, you know, the people from every generation are in states of isolation. Social media has made them more isolated than ever. Uh, loneliness. Uh, people in this country are in a state of chaos and confusion and panic because they don't even know what's going on anymore. The world has become so confusing and uh, so many support structures that used to exist have fallen apart. And it's just going to get worse, to be honest, because of automation and, and job loss. And so the real question is, how can we provide a sense of community and connection and belonging and love that's real you know, and supportive and that actually nurtures the best in people you know i don't have the answer for that necessarily but it's it's an open question and i guess my well, question you think that's the right question we should be asking yes yes so i have theory on it so first of all it, you could do it through religion but religion's gone we're just people are you know it, science took over and so people don't believe into that anymore i tried very hard when i was in the movement to believe in god and i just couldn't bring myself to do it 
because I just know too much, too much information that I was taught to in school. So religion could do it, but it's gone. Uh, you know, here's, I'm going to go partisan with it because it's the only way I see it happening. Um, to any of the bipartisans in the room or the conservatives in the room, I'm sorry, but we have to push left. Um, on the left and to the alt-righters in the room or whoever that's on the right, uh, you get told that the SJWs with the blue hair are going to come and take you away and put you in the gulag and they hate you and the transsexuals and the gays are going to destroy your society. I've been met. And even before I came out publicly like this and got put on this platform, I was met with nothing but love on the left that I had never experienced before in my entire life. On the right, all I was was beaten down, degraded, made fun of by even my own friends. And they always said, let's well, just jokes, toughen up, be a man, right? What do you mean by that specifically? What was happening? Well, I'm in male circles, right? So, uh, and I'm in gamer circles, so maybe they're a little bit more harsh with their rhetoric, but you can't talk about your feelings. You can't talk about what, what you're going through. You can't discuss any of that. You need to just toughen up, Snowflake. You need to drop the bullshit. Your emotions, they don't matter. Facts don't care about your feelings. You know, those kinds of memes. And so when I came over to the left, I expected when I made that video, I thought, well, they're going to eat me because that's what I've been taught that the left does. I still had that in my mind, even though I'd been come de-radicalized and, and moved to the left. I still thought they're going to destroy me. And there's been skepticism. There has been people that think my tactics are not the tactics that we should be using. But there has been nothing but camaraderie and love. And it finally, I know it's just people online, but I'm actually developing real relationships with people now that I'll know I'll have forever. And it's absolutely amazing. And I never got that on the right, even with my closest of friends. So to all the alt-writers and the conservatives, just give it a try, guys. Just come over and you can reach out to me on Twitter and I will talk to you and we can just have a dialogue about it. Um, you have to push left. And, and just to interject, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be pushing left, right? Like I would say, like maybe just leaving well, that extreme circle and meeting people yeah. in the real world, because there's lots of good people who are just, you know, conservatives. Conservative. Yes, 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 yes. So, what I get the sense of, though, that I never, and I, and I'm, I probably just have a small sample size to go from. So I, I, I'll, I'll drop that rhetoric there. But when I push left. When I pushed left myself, I found a whole lot of camaraderie. And, you know, I talked about earlier how my conservative and liberal contacts in society, they did not want to help me with this issue. But everybody that was on the left, they, they have just given me every resource available to them. Can I work for free? What do you need? And I'm like, I'll pay you back. Don't worry. No, don't worry about that, man. No, 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 no. We have a common goal here. There was like a sense of common, you know, uni unity that the right, I always talked about, but then I didn't experience it till I came over to the other side. So I don't mean to be partisan. I don't mean to say that you all have to be communists or, Ver or Bernie Sanders, but there was, some, there was a culture that I saw when I went to the other side that I'd never seen before that I was terrified of, and it was not the reality. It was just nothing but love. And even before, it's not the public platform. Even before I went on the public platform, I was getting this love from, from that side. Mm, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I will point out that, 
you know, it's interesting how, you know, not, not everyone on the, on the left per se is like a communist or an anarchist or something like that. Things have gotten so extremist and polarized all of a sudden, you know, like most people, you know, most, and this is why also why I raised the point about just standard American conservatives. It's like most people are just good people. Right. And they just, they just want to help. So, um, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily, I don't think it even needs to be something about going to another extreme because, you know, something just to be aware of for yourself as well. Yeah, don't, don't jump out of, don't jump out of one rabbit hole and jump into another guy. It's very That's, common. It's very common, yeah. even for people leaving cults to just, you know, to go just swing really far in the other direction. And I think also particularly, which leads us into what we were going to talk about the conspiracy culture as well. Like there used to be so many, uh, blogs and, and platforms online where people were just talking about conspiracy or esoteric ideas. And it was kind of, it was wacky. It was crazy, but it's like, okay, like people are doing their thing. And, um, you know, in, the, in some cases there's good information. Um, but once this cancer started metastasizing, so many of them just immediately went pure alt-right, you know, a shocking number of them. Uh, Red Ice Radio is a good example of that. Um, and, and several others, but but let's talk. So let's talk about the occult thing because the you know the thing that people have heard about obviously is meme magic. But obviously, there's a lot more yeah. to it than that. A lot more, right? And one of the things that one of the reasons that I became so that I started watching this so closely is because I have that background. It's like I have some context on that. You know, when I when I was involved in occult circles in the '90s and the early 2000s, there was kind of all, there was kind of this little slight, you know, proto-fascist thing going on way in the corner of like people who listen to Death in June or what, I don't even know if you remember Death in June or, or where, yeah, so, so it's, it's before your time, but like, there was a little bit of this, um, but now, so that was always kind of there, but way on the fringes and the occult world is already as about as fringe as it gets, particularly at that time. It's become more mainstream since. But at the time, the occult was as at the fringe of the fringe of the fringe of the fringe. And then there was this weird kind of like slight Nazi occult thing that was like way off in the horizon, even from that point. And it was like so fringe. That it was like, what, three people or something like that. So... Um, but talk about where, where is this at now and what is your take on it? Well, it sounds like, honestly, I thought I was going to be giving you information with the, with the meme magic, but it sounds like you probably know more about this than I do. So with what's going on right now that I've seen is there's these memes, right? And to anybody that doesn't know what a meme is, it's just a condensed idea. And then typically on the internet, it gets put into a picture. Now, a meme was coined by Richard Dawkins, so it could be anything everything's a meme. So in my culture, we just call everything a meme. You know, you want to talk about some communism memes or some capitalist memes. But the memes that the alt-right was using, they were sharing a lot of Pepe, which is the frog. Um, they were sharing a lot of this stuff. Now, the frog's really interesting. So first, they picked up Pepe just organically from the cartoonist because he, uh, Pepe, there was a cartoon where he's uh, peeing into a toilet and he has his pants all the way down on the floor. It's a little silly, guys. But And the guy walks in. He's like, what are you doing? And he says, feels good, man. And so it was just this funny little quippy uh, cartoon. And he was a character in the cartoon. The alt-right, for some reason, picked it up. And then they started doing like feels bad, man. And they did all these memes. And ne next thing you know, you got Pepe's in a Hitler outfit. Pepe's in a KKK robe. Pepe's got a MAGA hat on doing the OK sign. Uh, they're going to cut that up and put that out there. 
Mm. And that's why. <laughs> um, but so Pepe was their central figure. They were sharing the hell out of him and they were using him to push their message, right? But then someone on 4chan, as they always do, went digging. And what they found was something quite, for anyone that has a conspiratorial mindset, is quite disturbing, is that they found this ancient god, Keck. Uh, and Keck, K-E-K, the reason they found it, 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 it has something to do with a uh, World of Warcraft, where if you would type LOL, it would say K-E-K. Um, and so it was kind of interjected into gamer culture. And so they took that and they're like, wow, this frog, this ancient frog is named Keck. And he's the fr- same frog that we've been sharing. And he's the, he's the Egyptian god of chaos. And they thought, wow, this, we've re, we have, we have manifested the spirit of Keck into reality. And then, so they, they were memeing, memeing that up and talking about how they were all Kekistanis and they worship Keck. And then someone else found another connection and it goes back to this Italian album, this pop album, I believe from the eighties called, and on the track, one of the tracks is Chatelet. And on the album cover, there is a frog. And on the bottom of the album cover, it says P E P E Pepe. And if you listen to the lyrics, the translated lyrics, they're very esoteric. They're very weird. They very much talk about create opening up a rift in the universe and stepping into an alternate dimension where anything is possible. And so once the 4chan got a hold of that, they connected the Keck from the ancient god, they connected the the meme magic from Chatelet, and they said, that's it, guys. We found it. We brought back Keck. He's been talking to us all this time throughout history, and this is our point. And whenever they... And so then they believed that they were... Basically, and it's a big, it's, it's, it's a joke for many. It's ironic for many, but some of them truly believe it, that they had found in a form of occult magic that they were now using to di- get Donald Trump elected. And then when Donald Trump got elected be, against all odds, they truly believed that they had created a rift in the universe and had stepped into another dimension. And they'll back it up by things like, well, the Bernstein bears. What do you remember when you were a kid? Was it Bernstein or? Bernstein or whatever. That's a side note. But they talk about how you had truly stepped into this other dimension and that their meme magic had got them there. And it's to ramble on a little bit more, it goes straight back to the Nazis with their occultic beliefs, right? Is that the Nazis believed that they had they could harness the dark arts and basically shift shape reality into whatever they wanted. Heinrich Himmler, you know, he hung the black sun. I need to learn a little bit more about the black sun, but it was an occultic symbol. And he hung the black sun in one of his castles. And, and, and the right loves the black sun. I believe that it, uh, the uh, New Zealand shooter had a patch of the black sun on one of his bags. Uh, they put it into their uh, online videos called Fash Wave. It, they'll put a vaporwave black sun in the background. They're very much worshipers of power and dark magic. Yeah, so as somebody spent, <laughs> excuse me, altogether too much time researching this type of thing. Um, so the world of the occult, there are lots of different schools of occultism. And, and to broadly oversimplify, there's a left and right in the occult world as well. The, the left, to oversimplify, we could say that the left wing is concerned with liberating everyone, right? And we see this... The new age? 
Well, that's a... Like the age of Aquarius kind of thing? Yes, the new age is kind of a watered down, you know, hollow meme in its own right, in a sense. But, you know, the, the... when we think about things like esoteric Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, or um, uh, phrases, even like Crowley's phrase, every man and woman is a star. And the idea that, uh, yes, age of Aquarius, or everyone should be enlightened and everyone should be free. That's the left of the occult. It's, it's kind of, and which is where, you know, where I fall, certainly, which is that everyone should be liberated and free, you know, as, and attain to peace, freedom, and happiness. You know, may all beings be free from suffering and attain peace, freedom, and happiness. What that really means is that even going back to the, to the Buddha, you know, the whole goal of the Buddha uh, 500 years before Christ was, look, you know, like everyone, if just meditate long enough to realize that your suffering is a delusion and wake up and, and then we can be free of all this suffering. And that's kind of the whole goal and has been. Now on the right wing of the occult, which has been very hidden for a long time up until now, my view of it is it kind of decloaked out of nowhere in the last few years. The right wing of the occult is all about hierarchy. It's only certain people should have these uh, this understanding of reality and that everyone else should serve them, almost like a feudal society, which is a terrible idea. You know, my take on it is... There has always been this fascist occult thing. And yes, the Nazis absolutely, and Himmler, and all this was definitely going on. You know, even Nietzsche in some senses, but not all senses, and Crowley in some senses, but not all senses. This idea that, you know, that there, some, that there could be this elite of people ruling over the whole. You're right, exactly. And it's total edgelordy. It's edgelord nonsense, right? But, uh, and it basically uh, was defeated in World War II. There was no next to no remnant of it. And when I mentioned bands like Death in June and things like that, there were little people like ironically at the side, it's like, you know, playing with some of that ideology, which was, you know, obnoxious and dangerous at the time. But suddenly in the last two years, this whole school has decloaked as like sometimes called radical traditional traditionalism and things like this. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that was out of nowhere. It's like, it was just regenerating for 70 years or something after world war two. Then out of nowhere, it just popped its head back up and nobody had any defenses against it because they, they hadn't encountered it within their lifetime. Um, it, and which is puts people like me in an interesting situation where we understand it and we know what it is because of the occult background. And, my so my my broad take well a couple takes one is you know people tapped into something ironically that is very real and i don't think people you know the whole all right we can see it again as like a, a like a demon that has been summoned right that demon was there already right you know it was fed by the you know what i like to think about it like hmm. i think of it let's to take their tactics I like to think of it like Harry Potter. They defeat, they you know, they defeated Voldemort and the Death Eaters, right? But they didn't kill them completely, and all it took was a little bit of magic to bring it back. I think and that's exactly what they've done. The other thing is Dugan. You're, you're, I'm sure aware of Dugan, right? No, who's Dugan? So Dugan is probably who's funding Richard Spencer, and you, he's the person. Can you say that? How do you spell his last name? U G I N. Alexander Dugan. So Dugan. Yeah. So Dugan, this is really, I'm, I'm surprised people haven't figured this out more. So Alexander Dugan is the, a political advisor to Putin. 
and he has oh the connection with his wife i've heard about this a little bit yes uh, yeah spencer's wife right um it was a translator for dugan or something like that and um so dugan is an occultist and he wrote a book called the fourth political theory where he says that there should be a new you know it would basically putin after the fall of communism, Putin uh, in, in Putin's Russia, he's been casting around for a new ideology to unify Russia. And what they hit upon was um, traditionalism and these old Nazi ideas. And it's not really, they call it national Bolshevism. There's things from the left and the right. Nazgul. Yeah, they have meme pages. That are quite, quite, quite terrifying meme pages. There you go. So, and so Dugan's whole thing is Basically, they've reconstructed the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church as some new type of national identity for Russia in the way and, and in, a, as in opposition to American capitalism. And so one of the things is if you watch Russian, I don't know if you watch Russian television at all. I think I know where you're going with this. I think I've seen the pictures. <laughs> well, I don't know about the pictures, but they've run ads of like, they, there's a famous ad that was on Russian television of like, there's just a normal working guy at home and then all of a sudden his son turns into a, a, a trans person and, and like everything, everyone, you know, like everyone, uh, there's immigrants living in his room and it's like all this uh, alt-right stuff. So it's basically the idea in Russia is, oh, America is going to turn everyone, is going to undermine tradition and turn everyone gay. And it's all the same arguments that the alt-right make. But so Dugan has constructed this. And it, the other thing about Dugan is he's not a lightweight. It was Dugan's planning that went into the annexation of Crimea. Right. So and he uses the chaos star, which is a symbol from the left of the occult um, and from chaos magic, which is a, a tragic uh, misappropriation. Uh, and so Dugan has this whole occult theology of a hastening conflict with the West and, uh, you know, that Russia will essentially be the leader on the world stage and not the leader, not just of it's the same tactics they used in the, in the 60s, but just from the right instead of the left, that Russia will be the leader of the global dispossessed. And the thing, so there's the whole, so it's interesting, there's this whole Mueller, this whole Mueller thing that just happens. It's interesting we're having this conversation. You know, the Mueller investigation has didn't turn up any evidence of collusion with Trump and things like this, and people working out the details. And people have just gotten sick of CNN running, you know, constantly hitting the, which the alt-right plays on as well, hitting the trope of, oh, there's Russians everywhere. But the reality is, you know, we, we know, like, whatever Trump's involvement is, uh, Dugan's strategy is to go in and amp up to back radical groups. And so one of the ways that they keep control in Russia there's an amazing documentary I recommend, it's probably free online, I recommend watching called Hypernormalization by Adam Curtis. It talks about the strategy in Russia, but I don't think talks about Dugan at all. Where their, their strategy for social control in Russia under Putin, uh, which somebody else came up with, not Dugan, is, you know, they understand that there's going to be protest against Putin, right? He's a draconian ruler, you know, and just societies. <laughs> have radical groups as a normal, healthy function, right? They have their dissidents within any society. So their strategy that they hit on was instead of suppressing the dissident groups, which just proves their point and gives them credence and makes them martyrs, they'll just create a bunch of dissident groups so that nobody knows what's going on. So in Russia, they have something like 150 radical groups 
most of which are created by the Russian government and nobody, and they're all contradictory. And so they've created this chaos similar to when you go on the internet and you don't know what's true because you've got all these YouTubes coming at you from all these different directions. And they figured out that now they've decided to start doing this in other countries where what they were doing during, during the election is they were making all these Facebook pages of almost absurdly radical groups and actually creating flash mobs through Facebook and getting people to actually show up. And they very clearly funded the alt-right through Dugan um, or propped it up. And so they're like, and Dugan's strategy is just like, look, just cause chaos. Right. You know, we'll yep. prop up all the dissident groups, you know, we'll prop up radical groups on the left, radical groups on the right, the alt right, black separatist groups, um, you know, like all these, all these groups, right. You know, hundreds of them and we'll create them through Facebook and run Facebook ads. And that's real. You know, that's what they were actually doing. And they, they were radicalizing people on the alt right. And Spencer very likely is a Duganist plant, possibly, but I would say likely, you know, there's maybe other stuff going on there too. Um, so there's, you know, the, we are definitely living in an occult psyop engineered by, you know, a Russian occultist. You know, it's like, it's like that's like that's the thing, right? People like go crazy about like, oh, you know, Russians Trump colluded with Russia. It's like it's way worse than that. It's way no, that's, worse than that. I mean, he got his little Trump Tower going on, but that's not the type of collusion that I'm expecting to see. And now that you brought that up, I knew that they were meddling with the elections through the Facebook ads. But yeah, that's uh, by the way, to look about uh, Alexander Duke, and I have seen him one time in an interview. It was with Lauren Southern. I couldn't bear to listen to him because he was just so boring. <laughs> but uh, he, yeah, so he yeah, I, he does have very clear connections with them. And you know what? It's interesting. It's almost like now they do have magic powers, right? With the Facebook marketing. It almost is a type of sorcery, right? They they yes. hypnotize you. It's a sort of like um, um, illusion magic that they use on people, and they get their will in the world through that. And it, it, it's it's really freaking sinister. So, how do we break the illusion? Well, there's two ways to do it, right? Um, unless we're going to just dissolve into World War Three, which I don't want to see that. There's two ways to do it. You either go after the platforms and you hit their bottom line. You create a national movement and you hit YouTube and Google hard enough that they back off, that they back off and they deplatform at least the radicals, at least that, the Molyneux. Does that mean just kick people off the, you know, demonetize? Yes, deplatforms just like they did Alex Jones. Hmm. Okay. You have that approach. Uh, they're not, they don't want to do that. I would imagine because of the scrutiny and the bottom lines, so you have to make the pain tolerance of kicking, of keeping them on greater than the pain tolerance of kicking them off. Right. The other way we do it and, is and the thing that What is your response to people who say, well, that's maybe, a, you know, if, if certain, even if we don't agree with them, you know, like if private companies are cutting off people's free speech, you know, where does, you know, is that a slippery slope? Where does that end? What is, you know, what determines hate speech and free speech? Should private companies have the ability to do that? You know, what is your argument to that? From my layman's point of view, you can make a slippery slope argument with anything, anything. So you have to look at like the pragmatics of it. Uh, do I want to change the second amendment in this or the first amendment in this country? Um, not exactly. Um, I'm open to a debate on that, but for now, I'm fine with it. But as far as these platforms, they have a responsibility. When I go, if I, you know, when you run a Twitch stream, you have a chat running on the side. 
And it's your responsibility to make sure that there aren't trolls and people in there saying racist things, people in there lying, spreading propaganda. It's your responsibility on that platform. When I have my YouTube channel, it's my responsibility to platform people that aren't going to come on and lie. It's the same responsibility that journalists used to have, right? They had a responsibility and ethical framework to platform responsibly. YouTube and Google have the same responsibility. I know they don't see themselves in this way, but they are news channels, the big giant news channels. And they have to have they have to take ethical responsibility. Um, that's my opinion on that. Now, the uh, the other strategy that we do to influence this is we have to. I don't even want to call it magic because I don't want to devolve down to that level. But us bread tubers, we have to come together and we have to put out content and saturate the algorithm and t- and kind of fight back that demon with our own sort of pacifying magic. You know, by just pumping out content that's way better, way more interesting, and our content is way better and way more interesting. I would much rather watch ContraPoints do a theatrical, you know, uh, presentation or Peter Copton do a, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Peter Coffin do a, you know, uh, all different types of styles on his show than I would Sargon sit in front of a screen with an avatar for an hour and a half and just talk about SJWs and, and, and Anita Sarkeesian for 30 videos in a row. I mean, that. how did I buy into that crap? I don't even know. Do when I got over to the... There's an element of this where it's just... It's like a... I can, they just created so much content that it just swarmed the platform. Yes. And so they... And, and this is what the alt-right does. JF, for example. JF pumps out content every night. He streams for probably six, seven, eight hours. He's a real trooper. And they constantly, they know how to work the algorithm. They're constantly on each other's shows, putting things in the keywords. That's why those videos pop up on in people's feeds. Where, okay, My videos have been popping up in people's feeds, which I'm quite surprised of. But the reason is, is because it, 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 it just cross-pollinated with the other videos. And I imagine it's because my video had tags that are just so unique, right? Um, so you have to fight back by pumping out content. The, our content is harder to pump out because it's, it's usually a lot more entertaining. We need to do more live streams. We need to do more stuff like that so you can have quicker content. Because yeah, they I do agree. very easy content. You know, the right. alt-right, they pump that, out that hours is, and hours. I agree. I agree. I think that's... Uh, that's yeah, like... I like I, I would like to start doing more live streams. I mean, like even you know, like I'll, I do a podcast, but I'll work for like two weeks trying to get the audio perfect. And I think there is something to be learned there, where it's like no, it's just like swarm content out because at least my experience consuming YouTube, you know, and I'm in my late thirties, but it's like my my experience consuming YouTube is just like I just have it on. It's like I'm like eating, yes, or I'm like, it's, it's like comforting or something like that. I'm just like okay, what's on you? It's just like okay, what's on TV? You just click something. And then all you, you know, it's like, you know, people have made the observations like you click one Joe Rogan video and the next thing, and I, I love Rogan's show, and, but the yeah, album starts feeding you, and then it's Jordan Peterson, and then it's, oh, you do, you like anti-SGW stuff, you know, and the next thing you know, you're watching Jared Taylor videos or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, there's the, there's the joke and there's the joke in my circles that, you know, you can put on a Minecraft video or an Apex Legends tutorial, and then you fall asleep, and by the time you wake up, you know, uh, Stefan Molyneux screaming about how the white people are being replaced, and you wake oh. up at like three in the morning in this dis- disoriented state, how did this happen? How did we get here? And it's just because, you know, uh, um, 
The Pewdie Pipeline by Non-Compete, American Johnson. You all need to go check that out. And he explains exactly this. I'm going to make a video about this. And then if you want a more technical analysis of it, please go check out, I think it's Becca Lewis. I don't want to get her last name wrong. Becca Lewis, I believe, over at uh, Alternative Influence. And uh, that's the paper she did, Alternative Influence, about how these figures cross-pollinate on the platform and game the algorithm. Now, here's the issue. You, us as bread tubers and leftists, we have to engage with their content to break through this iron, I like to think of it as an iron curtain of, of content uh, because there has to be crossover, right? For, for the algorithm to in- interject you into their right-wing reactionary content. And so this is, why, this is why Destiny, he gets so much crap for this, but Stephen Bennell, Destiny, the, the Twitch streamer, on, uh, he has a YouTube channel, he did that. He debated. That's what brought me over. He debated Lauren Southern. He debated Nick Fuentes. These are all young millennial alt lighters and alt writers. And he debated them. And then that brought him into the algorithm. And then from there, he had conversations with ContraPoints. And that brought ContraPoints into the algorithm. And then once you got past that, you were fully past the Iron Curtain. And you could see, and it was amazing to me, it was like wow. the Iron Curtain back and behind there, there was all these YouTubers that I'd never seen before in my life and their content was amazing. Interesting. Bomber guy, philosophy tube, non-compete, um, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah K or Sarah Z, um, uh, Lindsay Ellis, I'm trying to name as many as I can. But yeah, there was just so many YouTubers that were on the other side producing wonderful content. This is great. I think Sam Cedar was another one. You have an understanding of it, maybe because because you're younger, you're you're more native to it. It's like you have an understanding of the algorithm. I just I hadn't really thought about that before. I didn't really understand. I actually had never thought about engineering the YouTube algorithm, but it makes perfect sense what you're saying. And I think that you know the broader conversation. Like, like here's my basic feeling, right? The alt right's not going away anytime soon. If anything, they're becoming, as we saw from the Christchurch shooting, you know, we we would hope that things like the Christchurch shooting and then prior the death of uh, Heather Hayer at Charlottesville would wake people up, right? To what, you know, it's not a game, right? And by the way, it's not like, you know, to people on the alt-right who may be watching this who are just like, you know, their their consumption of these ideas uh, is limited to watching YouTubes and being in gamer forums. It's what you have to understand also is you're on the precipice of a very real world, Right. There is a very real organized white supremacist world in America that is, for instance, um, Aryan nations in prison, prison gangs in prisons throughout the U.S., you know, organized Odinist white supremacists. Um, the, the thing we talked about, law enforcement, you know, separatist groups in the Pacific Northwest, the remainders of whatever William Pierce created, you know, all this stuff is, is there. And, uh, that's not a place you want to be, you know, like that's not a happy, that's like a very scary, very terrifying world. You know, it'd be similar to, I don't know, getting inducted into ISIS basically, right? You know, one day flying Fortnite, next thing you know, you have a bag over your head and you're being like, you know, uh, you know, uh, horrifyingly initiated into ISIS. You have to like double tap somebody to get into ISIS or some horrifying thing like that. So, Um, it's not a game, right? And the, the, one of the things that the alt-right has been able to do is turn it into a game or seemingly where it's like they've used all these, you know, PewDiePie or video game imagery or synthwave imagery and all of a sudden it's like, or what the Daily Stormer does with cartoons and things and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, like 
but it, this is not to a appeal game. Appeal to children to appeal to children. <laughs> That's horrifying, right? So it's horrifying. Yeah, and so I think that your point about so so to back up, I don't think the all right is going anywhere. Unfortunately, it's a little entrenched at this point. I don't think that, and we see these far right movements taking off in Europe. Um, I don't think that. Um, it, there, I'm sure there will be some type of public debate about whether these, you know, the whole, I'm sure the, you know, debate about, you know, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and so on censoring content will, will come to some head within the next few years, but who knows what form that will take. I'm sure it'll be a halfway measure. I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure I know the answer to that situation because I can see on both sides, like, well, you know, the, the whole, you know, censorship of political speech versus, you know, having total psychopaths access to all the minds of all the children of America, you know, that's, you know, but these are why, you know, th these debates have been fought over and over again at the level of public policy, but not necessarily in private companies. But anyways, one way or another, that debate will come to a head within the next few years. But there's a lot, there's gonna be a long time between now and then. And who knows what the outcome of that will be. So I think that what you said, which is content swarming, better content, and just proposing a better worldview um, and something that actually helps people um, is probably the way to go. Yeah. So um, just like, I just want to throw out a couple points. Like, it, it, we, first of all, we can't lose our integrity. We can't degrade our message. You know, we can't stoop to their level whenever we're putting out our content. We don't want to brainwash, you know, maybe we can make appeals to emotions in our videos, but we don't want to brainwash people from one rabbit hole into another. That's not right. That's not fair. And it's not going to create the kind of people that we want associated with as allies. We want to get people out of this occultic nonsense. Um, you know, I think that you asked me, well, what do we do about this? What, what is this? What's the actual issue here? This is a public health crisis. This isn't a political movement. This I isn't really even a cult. That's, those, are, those are ways to talk about this, but it is a public health crisis in the same way that ISIS recruits. They prey on people that are isolated, mentally ill, that don't have an identity, and they, they offer something to you. In, in the, kind of in the opposite way that Jesus Christ acted, right? Jesus Christ said, I will give you grace. I will give you the kingdom of heaven and you can have it for free. Whereas they tell you you can have all the things in the world. You can have, you, you can be in charge of the kingdom of heaven. You can be at the top of the hierarchy, but you have to give me your identity. And so we need to, we need to have a focus on mental health. It's the reason we have the school shooters. It's the reason we have, you know, the, the, the ISIS recruiting. It's the reason we have people doing heroin and drugs. It's the reason people are consuming bad content. It's, it's because there is a issue of isolation and alienation in our society. We have to deal with that. And the only way we deal with that is my message, my mission, love and empathy and giving these people a safe space to come into and a community to belong. So that's what I believe. Have you ever heard the song Pictures of Adolf by Bill Fay? It's from the 70s. It's before both of our time, actually. But... I recommend looking it up. There's a line in there that's, it's, uh, you know, Christ or Hitler, that's the choice sooner or later you're going to have to make. Right. Oh. And, and it's true, right? It's like, well, what's, what are the lines? It's like, okay. So, so in the papers, on the TV screens, pictures of Adolf again, at, or on YouTube, on Twitter, on 4chan, pictures of Adolf again. As sure as I sit here, there will appear 
pictures of Adolf again. It's 1971. You're wrong. You're wrong. Throw down your cards. You're wrong. If you say Adolf, he won't come. Um, you know, okay, deny representation by leaders of all nations. Have you got, have you really got anyone to replace them? Christ or Hitler, Christ or Vorster, who was the, uh, I believe, um, an apartheid supporting a politician in South Africa, if I remember correctly. So Christ or Hitler, Christ or Vorster, Christ or all the Caesars to come. That's the choice sooner or later. That's the choice you're going to have to make. And I think that uh, in hearing that, it's better if you hear the song. It's copyrighted, obviously. What's so, the song called? Uh, Pictures of Adolf by Bill Fay. You know what? It's it's like you know, say his name three times and he'll appear. It really does, and it's almost like I'll I'll give Jordan a bone here. It's like his idea of this union spirit, these archetypes that manifest themselves over and over again. It seems like that's what we're going through. I don't believe it's in any sort of metaphysical sense. I think it's just the fact that memes get pat, ideas get passed down. But it yeah. does seem like things always yeah, make the response. It's a great, you know, you know, a great coiner of memetics, you know, it's not, yeah. So, um, yeah, but I, I think, the, and, and just, in, you know, my, my caveat to that, it's like, you know, he's saying Christ or Hitler. I don't even necessarily think Christ necessarily means, you know, being a Christian, right? Or like yeah. in the real tangible sense. But I mean, Christ is in the spirit of, you know, what what is Christ? It's like having compassion, you know, forgiveness and compassion for other people. You know, like Christ's commandment is see, you know, Christ in the New Testament comes and he says, he, he upholds the Ten Commandments, but he adds a new commandment. He basically says, let me make this real simple for you. If you follow this, everything falls into place. Love your brother as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself, meaning see other people as just as precious as you hold yourself, right? So that's, that's Christ, right? As opposed to Hitler, which is all this, you know, hierarchy, domination, control, I'm better than, you're lesser than, you know, that's that. Le- yep. Once you start that, where does it end, right? It's like once you start, and you even see it on the all right when they do, when they start doing their purity spiral thing, you know, it's like once you start that, once you start the hierarchy, somebody's better than somebody else and somebody is pure and somebody's impure and therefore one person deserves to live and the other does not, where does that end? You know, there's no end to that in the same way that the revenge cycle, the eye for an eye, it's like, it never ends. You know, somebody does something and then you get them back, then they get you back, then you get, it never ends. It never ends. Somebody just says, just stop. Like, okay, like, we're going to cut this out, you know, so. It's the, um, what's what they believe in natural selection, sort of, it goes back to that. And it's what, it's the greatest criticism of the ethno state in the sense that what is white? And once you wipe out all the people of color and once you wipe out all what you call the degenerates, the gays and the transsexuals, once you wipe out all those people and you just have your Caucasians, now what's white? Am I white? I got a pretty big nose. You'll probably wipe me out. What well, after that? A bunch of a little- it's, yeah, it's going to be a bunch of people in a trailer park, you know, like just, you know, you know, like yeah. looking at each other funny, like, or just like, you know, oh yeah, we got to round up all the people with brown hair or something, you know, it's just... Yeah, and then and then cultural Marxism will turn into Caucasian Marxism, right? You know, they'll always it will never end. And you're right. And the difference between Hitler and 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 to be fair, if you talk to an alt writer, they will say, "Well, my brothers have compassion for me. I love my people. We love each other." Yes, you do. But here's the thing: you're getting it at a cost. It's not coming for free. Whereas Christ gave it for free. It's called grace. You know, you can give love for free. You don't need to command over someone and rule over them for them to accept it. And when I was in the movement, just real quick, I constantly 
would degrade myself and think I was infected and impure. If I had, if I wanted to go out and, and, and party, if I wanted to go out and have some fun, if I wanted to do this or that or have this opinion, I felt like this was an infection that the liberal media had put into me, but indoctrinated me as a child. And I constantly felt like I had to expel that parasite. In ContraPoints, Natalie talked about this very recently with David Packman. She says that fascism very much is obsessed with this idea that it's, it's like an organism that's prone to infection. And that's very much the idea. I just got off the phone with a, a, a Hispanic girl who she internalized this and she felt that she was impure because she buyed into it too. And she said she was in love with Richard. It's, they, they tear you down. Well, it's also, you. you know, the whole point about internalized racism, you know, the people of color experience, you know, not, not even, not, not even in relation to the all right, but just in terms of, the white supremacy, the embedded white supremacy in American culture, where people internalize it, you know, and then, you know, it's talking about internalized racism and internalized self-hatred that they picked up from these cultural messages. It's, it's the more you, if you really stop and think about that, the more you really stop and think about that, the more heartbreaking it really is. It's just, it's just about thinking, I'm not good enough. I need to constantly do better. I'm all for self-improvement. These things are great. But the idea that you're infected with some sort of disease and you have to purge it from yourself, the, le- the, the, le- the lengths you'll go to purge that from yourself, you will destroy everything about yourself. And this is what Stefan would do. Stefan would teach you, you need to break yourself down and rebuild yourself. It's the yeah, tactics they use in, in armed forces. It's the tactics they use. Stuff. So I want yeah. to, we, we should probably come to a, a close, but I want to, yeah, re- it sounds like we're going to go on all night here. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you know who um, Robert J. Lifton is? No, you're giving me tons of stuff to look up. Uh, Robert, Robert, J. J. Robert J. Lifton was a psychiatrist who researched cults and he did a ton of um, great, Great. So, look, if you look up uh, Lifton Criteria, Robert J. Lifton Criteria, uh, L-I-F-T-O-N. Okay. And let's see. So, he has a classic checklist to see whether you're in a cult or not. And I just want to go through this with you real quick um, yeah. as re- related to the alt-right. Okay. You want me to answer them? Yes. Uh, uh, criteria. Shoot. Okay, let me just find it real quick. So it's called uh, Lifton's Eight Criteria for Thought Reform. Okay, so I'm just, I'll throw this out and a little, with a little description in each one, and then you tell me how this applies to the alt right, or if it does. You know, I, I don't I'll just, tell you how it applies. I'll just tell you how it applied to me when I was going through okay, this. Okay, perfect. that's even better, actually. Okay, so number one, my loop control. This involves the control of information and communication, both within the environment and ultimately within the individual resulting in a significant degree of isolation from society at large. Yeah, the fake news wall garden, as I like to call it. You can't listen to sources outside. They're not giving you the truth. We have the, the real truth. We have the hidden knowledge, the red pill that's been hidden from you. Yes, do not go outside our circles. I did not watch any news sources while I was in this. I listened to only the people that were vetting each other that would go on each other's shows. So I was very much in a wall garden. This is crazy, right? Because if you think about it, this is exactly what Scientology does, right? If you're in Scientology, you're not allowed to watch news or go on the internet. You're not allowed to have the internet if you're in Scientology, if you're in a, the Sea Order, if, if, you, if you're not a celebrity, but if you're really in their cult. You don't have access to information because they don't want people seeing contradictory information. But what you're saying is insane because you're on the, you know, like, 
like in reality, you're sitting at a computer, you have access to all of the information in human history. Well, remember though, it's not just the fact that they tell you to search outside. It's also the fact that the way these systems work is you will only be fed what you're looking at. So it's even more sinister. Not only do they isolate you with their rhetoric and what they tell you about the other, but the algorithm isolates you itself. Uh-huh. But, and, but then also, like you load a belief system that becomes a filter through which you take in information. Wow. Okay. So this I was is, completely I, transformed. I saw the world in a completely different lens through this period. So it's like a hypnotic thing where they, they completely isolate you from society and you know, contradictory information, even though the reality is you have access to infinite information, right? It's like no one's forcing, no one's holding a gun to your head. Nobody, but like they put blinkers on so that you don't see it. It's crazy. Okay, number two. Okay, so check, one check. Okay, you know, really, that's great. Like, wow, this is actually very helpful because it's like, it's like, how the, it's like, how the fuck did they do this without a physical cult? Okay, number two. Mystical manipulation. There is manipulation of experiences that appear spontaneous, but in fact were planned and orchestrated by the group or its leaders in order to demonstrate divine authority or spiritual advancement or some special gift or talent that will then allow the leader to reinterpret events, scripture, and experiences as he or she wishes. Is this kind of the Trump effect? Where Trump kind of like, I, I'm, I'm not, it's not totally connecting with me what you're saying there but so, so an example of how this would work it's like so you imagine like charles manson right this is how this you know charles manson would be like oh like um you know uh you know i'm going to use something this is not something i'm just making something up but it would be something like you know in the next five days by the will of my magical power i will make um, something that was obviously going to happen, happen. You know, a plane will fall out of the sky because I just think it because I'm angry at my followers. And then lo and behold, four days later, a plane falls out of the sky. And actually, it's just coincidence because honestly, planes are probably always falling out of the sky. So you can just like pick it from the newspaper and say, look, there, it proves that I have mystic power and therefore that I can exercise this over followers who leave or something like that, right? Well, that there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of predictions that, that these talking heads will make and then those predictions do... Alex Jones is the best example of this. Alex Jones will come out with an outrageous prediction, an outlandish prediction. And then in some way, it's like in some way true... The gay frogs, just research the gay uh, frog, you know, they're turning the frogs into the water. He, there was a truth to that, right? There was a truth to that. That story as a journalist, like that was actually true. There was a, uh, and pe- the, the researchers who discovered that at the UC Davis or San Francisco were harassed and stalked by uh, big ag people. It's crazy. It's a crazy story. It was reported on, on Democracy Now. But when Alex yeah. Jones up, you know, it just sounded totally, you know, it's Alex Jones effect. Right. So, so yeah, every once in a while, they'll have this thing where they'll make a prediction like that, and then it comes true, and then you say, well, well, all right, they got the information, they got the real sources. What about the Keck stuff and the meme magic? And Well, yeah, yeah, well, that's, I think that would be like, yeah, we're, we're, that would go into the more spiritual part of it, and that gets your conspir- the conspiratorial part of your brain working. During a lot of this time, I was trying to get away from conspiracy theories. I was trying to reject a lot of that stuff because I had fell into the 9-11 hole for a while. And I was trying to reject that. But when I saw the meme magic, I, I, there was moments where I thought, wow, I mean, wow, have we fallen into another dimension where Trump right. is president? 
there, there was a, there was an esoteric sense to me that was like, it, it made me stop and think. I won't lie. Yeah, you understand how that trick works, right? It, can you explain that to me? I think I know. Is it, is it like when you're, uh, is it like when you're driving a car, like you buy a car and then you're driving, you start to see that car everywhere? Yes. There's actually a part of the brain called the reticular activating system that turns on uh, uh, just confirmation bias, right? It's like you tell yourself to look for something, you're going to find it. Because the reality is the the world is infinite information available and our brains are constantly trying to make sense of it. And the way we tend to make sense of it uh, for better and often for worse is by creating a story about the world to make sense of it. And then people become trapped in those stories and it becomes a real problem. Um, so, but it's just like confirmation bias where it's like, you know, if I say, you know, look for red for the next day, you're going to see red everywhere, but you're going to be seeing lots of blue all the time, but you're not, your brain's not going to be registering it. So in the same way, if somebody says, Oh, look for evidence that I don't know, uh, white people are being replaced or look for evidence that, you know, as some ethnic group is orchestrating some, some conspiracy, then your brain will interpret what's actually just random chaotic information to fit it to the narrative, which is how confirmation bias works. You know, the whole point of the scientific method is to guard against it. And it's the same with, you know, like people get super into numerology where it's like, you know, they decide, for instance, a classic example is they decide a number is mystical, like let's say 1111 or 23, right? Then they start seeing it everywhere. Well, okay, the reality is you were seeing like you're seeing infinite numbers all the time anyways, you were already seeing that number. Now you've just sensitized your brain to be aware of it, right? That's how confirmation bias works. And, and uh, I actually think it's fascinating because you can hack it and you can decide what you want to have confirmation bias for, which is a real kind of magic, right? Where you can say, well, I'm going to train my brain to look for opportunities to be more healthy. I'm going to train my brain. Have to you done this? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is magic, right? You train your brain to say, okay, well, I'm going to look for opportunities to gain wealth. You know, I'm going to look for opportunities yeah. to help, you know, like right now, like in the last, uh, you know, in the last, um, let's say four months, I've made the shift within myself where I've been training myself to say, okay, I'm going to look for opportunities where I can give love. Right. Or I'm going to look for opportunities where I can contribute and make a difference. And, you know, in the last few, and I'm not bigging myself up. I'm just saying, just as an example of how this can work, you know, in the last three, four months, I've raised um, all this money for um, children in Nepal. I raised money for children in Africa. I raised money for um, uh, one of my mentors who is suffering from leukemia and, and may have saved on the order of eight or nine lives. I don't know, but it's like all those opportunities were always there. I just wasn't training my brain to look for them. So if you train your brain to look for that, you'll see it. Or if you train your brain to look for ways of career advancement, you'll see it. You know, it's not one right thing for everyone, you know, and it changes throughout your life. But if you train your brain to look for the red evidence of the red pill being true, lo and behold, your brain is going to filter that, you know? So this is, it's very, um, you have to be very aware of that confirmation bias. So it's actually not mystical at all. It's just, you're telling your brain to pick up information out of an infinite field. Right. Well, we'll have to talk at a later time and you can help me learn how to deconstruct that because it's such a, that it's magic. It's a, it's a strong pool. Yeah. Well, it's simple. Just decide, you know, decide something, decide. On well, something. how do you get someone else to come out of that? Ah, okay. Well, good question. All right. So, so the first thing is you have to, so here's, here's one way to look at this. If somebody has a belief, 
you think of it like um, Tony Robbins talks about it this way. You have a, you, you, somebody has a belief. It's like a table, right? So the, the, the surface of the table is the belief and then it has all these references. So the legs of the table are references and what the references are, are experiences that they've had or information they've taken in um, that seem to prop up that belief, right? Seem to validate that it's true, right? Like for instance, somebody decides that, you know, so somebody uh, got cut off in traffic once by a black person. Therefore, that's proof of their racist beliefs. It's like, you know, we, we, we laugh, but people do this all the time, right? So, um, um, so what you do is first you sweep the legs, you, you kick out all the references, right? And you, by getting them to question the references, and it can be as simple as like, well, um, look up, there is a concept called the work by Byron Katie. It's just a series of questions. And this is useful. See, this is the approach I've been trying to take. I'm trying to get away from debating someone. Uh, I used to like, when I would want to convince someone of something, I'd try to just attack them with the points. Now I'm trying to just ask, like ask them questions and get them to question like the entire premise. So the, the, what is it? The, um, the work by Byron. The work. The work. By, you w- broke up there. By Byron what? Byron Katie. So I'm going to give you some magic tools here. It's just a series of questions, right? Um, and this is it. Uh, when you, you question a belief, you kick out a belief by asking these four questions. Number one, is it true? Right? Okay. Number two, can you absolutely know that it's true? Mm-hmm. Number three, how do you react? What happens when you believe that thought? How do you react? Or another way of putting this is, how do you feel? How does it make you feel when you have that thought, right? And usually, when we're talking about some of these beliefs, it's like probably pretty shitty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, well, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the beliefs I had. There you go. So it's like so. So you get so first you get somebody questioning. Well, okay. Well, is it true? Well, yes. Well, can you absolutely? Know, how how can you absolutely know that it's true? Well, at that point, a little crack begins to open because like, well, you know, like if I really start to think about it, you know, uh, and then third is, okay, well, well, how do you react? You know, what happens when you believe that thought? How do you feel when you have that thought? Um, kind of scared and disempowered and afraid and angry all at the same time. Well, and then, and then you don't even say anything. It's like, oh, just, then, then they should realize, well, that's not good, right? And then four, last question is, who would you be without that thought? Right. That, there's the opening. And that's, that's probably the problem. They want that nostalgia and identity. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's just that it's that simple. Right. And, and, um, you can do this if you have own, your own self-defeating thoughts and things like that. So that's just one example. There's lots of ways to do it. But then the other one is, um, then you, you, you give them once the belief is destabilized, Right. Well, you kick, but you kick out the references. You show that the references for the belief are not true or not absolutely true, or there may be another way to see it. And then you get, then you give them a new belief, but then you have to prop up the new belief with new references. Right. So, um, for instance, um, all people are, you know, you shouldn't be racist. You know, we love everyone. So here's an example of this. You, you look at somebody like Christian Piccolini, right? And he talks about his moment of when he, his conversion away from far-right extremism was he was working in a record shop um, that was selling skin music. 
but was also sorry. I mean, you know the story, right? Yeah, I think so. I was just listening to him give a talk today. He also talked about the birth of his child. Or that's powerful for most people, no matter what, right? That 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 will snap people out of their selfish things. Usually, <clears throat> the thing about the alt right is they play on this whole biological reproductive thing and all that, um, which is a real deep hook for people. Um, but the um, uh, so 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 his story is he opened a record store to sell skinhead music. But in order to stay afloat, in order to get enough income, he also had to sell other types of music. It was not just skin music because then his story wasn't going to get enough money. And so because of that, other people started coming into his store who were of other races, right? And so he was, he was interacting with them and he kind of became friends with a lot of them and realized like, wait, these stories I've been told about people are just total nonsense, right? Um, and often with hate groups, a lot of times what you see happening is when it seems to me I've read this many times that a really powerful trigger for people is when somebody who is another race, orientation, religion, Jewish person, black person, is um, shows them compassion and forgiveness. You know, I've seen this in many many uh, accounts of of de-radicalized hate people. Now, uh, hate you know now now there's there's a, there's a danger in that in that this puts an unfair expectation on people of color uh, to be you know magical and all loving and you know like you know it's, it's just an unfair expectation of other human beings that they should be saints right it's just too much to ask of people so there's a bit of a and, and it's also unfair to put the onus of de-radicalization on targeted people you know it's like no, no, no the onus of de-radicalization is on the people who have been radicalized um, but I'm just sharing these as it demonstrates that, you know, when these situations have happened, we shouldn't expect them. But when they do happen, it seems they have a very powerful effect. So in that case, so in, in Christian Piglini's case, I would love to have, I would love to talk to him. Um, but in his case, he talks about, you know, he started becoming friends with people of other races. And then, and then, and then it started to fall apart for him because all of a sudden he's got new references supporting a different belief. It's like, well, wait, you know, the new belief is being built. Right. And then finally, I mean, ultimately, what you have to do is get people to associate massive pain to having the undesired belief and associate total pleasure to the new belief. I mean, it's this simple, right? Yeah. If you stay an extremist, what's your life going to be like? No, no, really think about it. I mean, let's say five years from now, 10 years from now, who are you going to be? You know, who do you love right now that's in your life that's not going to be there anymore? Where are your career options going to be? Are you going to be able to be, are you going to be employable? You know, are you going to be able to make money? Are you, uh, you know, and it, what, who are you going to be internally, even more importantly? You know, what are you thinking when you go to sleep? Are you, when it's four in the morning and nobody's watching and you think that you're all alone with your thoughts and it's just you and there's no, no internet and there's no fronting, there's no artifice, there's no trolling, there's no memes. In your heart of hearts, how do you feel about yourself at 4 a.m.? When you're awake because you can't go to sleep, you know, do you feel what's in your heart, you know? And then you take 10 years, 20 years stacking of that, you know, what's that going to be like versus, and then you just get them to the point where it's so overwhelming that they're like, fuck, you know, because it's true, right? You know, it's like, this is a path of heartache, right? And, and isolation and pain and, and hatred, you know, in the true, in, in the, you know, in all senses, right? Not just in the political sense, but, in, you know, being filled with that, you know, it's like, imagine the, 
what that does to somebody's body over the long term, right? So, and the people around them that that um, they loved or who once loved them. So, and then you, you, okay, well, what's the alternative? You know, like, well, if you drop this, you know, like, think about, you know, what's that going to be like being able, you know, being accepted, being forgiven, having lots of friends, not having, not having all your energy sapped by this vampiric belief system, um, being employable, uh, making a difference, maybe the emotional trigger of, you know, because people, by the way, people, as we've established in this conversation, you know, like people in this, in this movement, on some level, they're looking for connection, they're looking to be significant, they're looking to be special, uh, and they want a sense of family, they want a sense of belonging. Well, what if there are other ways to do that? What if, you know, but just by what if you can get that sense of, as you are right now, you've made this powerful shift, where you said for yourself, you know, look, I'm going to get a sense of, and then you got, but you know, you, you made a decision that was a powerfully brave and moral decision. And you said, I'm going to get the significance. Um, I'm going to get, I, I'm going to be fulfilled by helping de-radicalize people and get people out of this. And then you immediately got new references that were like, now you, like you said before, like all these people showed you love, all these people accepted you, you know, all of a sudden you had all these social connections, um, you know, whether, you know, uh, and, and so all of a sudden you had all these references to support that this was the correct, uh, you know, and how much better, by the way, this is a real question. How much better does this feel now than when you were deep in the throes of that? Well, I don't want to speak too soon because I'm getting a big love bomb and I'm on a dopamine high or whatever, right? But I, it's just that I don't feel what I will say 100%. I don't feel the anxiety of I have to pretend to be someone else and I have to think that there's some kind of poison inside of me that I have to get out. That's gone. It just went away when I came over, even before I got the platform. Like It just went away because all of a sudden, the people that I'm associating with now, they don't care if you're gay, you're trans, they don't care if you think this way or that way. As long as your beliefs aren't exclusionary and wanting to put power over people and oppress people, you can do whatever you want. You know, if they if 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 you're exhibiting behavior that's unhealthy for you, people are gonna warn you and they're gonna sit and want to have a conversation with you about that. But as far as like telling you you have to live this strict, rigid, essentialist what you know, way of thinking, I don't have that anymore. And it feels so freeing. I don't go into a mic chat anymore and get berated and made fun of. You know, they commented about my nose. I've been made fun of about my nose for a long time. I was self-conscious about my nose up until I made that video. And you know what? Whenever I talk to people on the other side, they say, I like big noses. They're cute. You know, they say things like that. They're like, there's nothing wrong with a big nose. And so I was like, well, wait, you guys aren't going to make fun of me for that? No, why would we? And when I was on the other side of it, and I don't know if it's a political thing or if it's just like people get a mindset, but it that's gone. And I'm grateful for that. And that that's probably where a lot of my angst and my depression, that and the feeling isolated. Wow. That's where that, those negative feelings came from. Hmm. It's interesting, uh, Natalie went, you know, ContraPoints I have infinite love for. I honestly think that that uh, I would love to talk to her too. I, I'm a big supporter of her on Patreon because I honestly think that <laughs> I honestly think that Natalie Wynn is the uh, America's last bulwark against fascism. <laughs> well, Natalie, I, I speak. I don't mean to cut you off, but I speak so highly of Natalie. I owe her everything that I have, and I don't mean to set her up as some kind of like figure that I follow. But I, I do. I owe her everything. If I had been in 
if some event had happened in my life and I had become filled with despair, you know, they call it black pill on the other side. If, if I had joined a radical movement, I don't know what my life would have turned into. Like you said, what is your life going to be like five years from now, 10 years from now? And I start to think about it now and I'm like, dear God, she saved my life. And so, but Natalie, Natalie pays a high cost for what she does. It's mm-hmm. easy for me. I, I've been vaccinated to their bullshit. I can sit and listen to their their evil words come out of their mouths and it doesn't trigger me emotionally. I can just seep it in. It goes in one ear, I process it and it goes right out the other. But Natalie, the woman has taken a, a men- it's taken a toll on her mental health to do this. Mm-hmm. She was not to do this. She was not set up to do this. She she has sacrificed herself to this movement and she deserves credit for that. Please, yeah, shout out to, please, yeah, definitely watch her videos for people listening if you haven't. And please support Natalie Wynn on uh, ContraPoints on Patreon. Um, she's, it's it's the new war effort, honestly. It's like buying war bonds in World War II. It's that important. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so let me go, let me go through the rest of this, this, uh, these criteria. We'll do this more quickly this time because I, I think this okay, is, okay. So, so, so far, just to, to, to recap, we've got Milieu Control. Uh, control, so controlling information and uh, connection with society and ice keeping isolated check, right? Uh, two is mystical manipulation, the whole meme magic and all of this check, right? Uh, and then, okay, so three is demand for purity. The world is viewed as black and white and the members are constantly exhorted to conform to the ideology of the group and strive for, for perfection. The induction of guilt and or shame is a powerful control device used here. Yeah, really fast. So they set up an in-group, they set up an out-group. There are properties that the in-group has to express and inhibit. And then there are properties that the out-group uh, has that, that are unacceptable. Uh, the Hispanic girl I told you about, she hated the fact that she was brown. She hated the fact of her culture. She thought that her people were you know, less intelligent, more savage. She had internalized all that impression and she had it totally destroyed. It almost totally destroyed her. I had the same thing. It creates a lot of a sense of anxiety, a sense of guilt. It creates a lot of these things. Then to alleviate that sense of anxiety and guilt, you go back to the YouTube to get the dopamine drip, but you also go back to the message and the people that are telling you, yes, we will give you pride. We will give you honor. We will fill you up with everything that you need. Just give me everything that you have. Wow. Yeah. So check. <laughs> right. Check 100%. That is the strongest motivator but beyond the malute control and the mystical manipulation and all that stuff. That is the thing that day to day is on your mind. Wow. Okay. So three out of three so far. All right. So let's see. Number four is confession. Sins as defined by the group are to be confessed either to a personal monitor or publicly to the group. There is no confidentiality. Members' sins, attitudes, and faults are discussed and exploited by the leaders. Well, it's hard for me because it's a kind of a decentralized thing. But I tell you what, you're, there's things that you would never say if you were around a group of people that shared those beliefs. You would just never express those thoughts. You wouldn't even entertain those thoughts. And if you were to bring them up, you would be expelled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's hard when it's a, a decentralized thing like this. There's no group. Most of the time, there's unless you have a social group of friends that all share this or you're involved with meme pages, there's no group that you have to swear allegiance to. This is a um, just a just a giant tree, and it's it's like roots out through society. So, well, what there's about, no here's a, here's a thought about this. It's not exactly what he so he's he's you know d- defining a dynamic that is very hard to do online. 
But uh, what about this? I mean, there's is something that you know I've noticed. So what I would imagine is that people who are indoctrinated with the alt right end up, you know, like you use this phrase power level, right? Like it's, you're never supposed to show your power level, right? Is this something I've seen them talking about? And just so anybody knows what that means, power level is just where I know information that you don't know, and I can't tell all the information to you at once because if I did, you would reject me or socially ostracize me or have me lose my job. So I might want to tell you that, yes, brown people are replacing us and that's going to lower white birth rates and that's going to lead to the decay of society. But I can't say that outright. So I'm going to start dog whistling and talking about, have you ever noticed how like Mexicans have this behavior? Have you ever noticed how blacks have this behavior? You'd give them a little sip of it and you indoctrinate them over time. And I would do this not so much in a Machiavellian way, but it's because I knew it's what I had to do if I wanted to spread my message. Hmm. So there's also a sense of, so yeah, it's basically that you hold extreme racist views that you can't say in public, right? I yeah. Mean, so. or even in, And even if you don't see yourself as being racist, but it's like, well, they see it as racist, right? So, right. It, But so, if you know that society won't accept it. So kind of what they're doing there, I would imagine, is it's the guilt hook in the sense that your brain is now filled with these ideologies that you cannot say in public. The only people you can communicate with these things are uh, about, about these things with are other members of the group. And that you know that if you say them, your real world life will be destroyed. So you have to develop this kind of schizoid personality or, and then it's also just, it's like, you start dressing like I'm dressing right now. You start cutting your hair. Like I have my hair cut right now. You come off looking presentable and and nice and someone will talk to me. They're not going to talk to me if I shave my head. But also you, 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 I would imagine internalize the, the guilt by association in the sense that you, because you are now guilty of having those, I, those beliefs and ideas, you're hooked to the group. Right, because you believe that like you are beyond redemption, perhaps, or that if you talk to the if you explain yeah. like there's basically nowhere to go at that point other than to other to except to other people who share the ideology. So they hook you by the shared guilt, right? In the same way that a gang, right, if you're committing at illegal activities, you can never say that stuff. And so the only people you have that shared bond with are the other people in the gang, right? You're controlled by the shared guilt. And then if somebody tries to leave the gang, They'll be like, well, we can say what you did last summer, you know, or, or whatever. Uh, you kind of see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, see, I wasn't involved with many groups, so I didn't experience that. But I know that pe- I, I know there are people in the movement that have experienced that. Um, but I mean, sure. the, I experienced what, though? The, uh, the holding information over someone's head. So, for example, there have been people that left the alt-right movement before that were actually involved in groups. And... Um, the other the other people doxed them and exposed who they were. Yeah, so that shared all their chat logs. Uh, and this is a, I mean, this is a way they call to keep control of people. Right? They get people to confess things and then say, if you leave the group, we'll expose the information. Right? So, but yeah, it's also, I'm just glad I wasn't part of an in group because they would have done that to me. Right? So there you go. But then there's also, but I think there's also just that once you internalize the belief then it's still guilt by association, right? It's like, yeah. you, still, you know, you're still tied to them by holding the guilt of, you know, carrying the meme complex. Yeah. Like, I felt guilty the whole time. The IQ <laughs> shit, I would feel guilty about it. I'd be like, this, is, I, this isn't right, but I don't, it's true. But I would feel guilty about it. And like, I would, yeah, and I wouldn't want to talk about it 
in large part because of that guilt. The IQ shit, I didn't talk about really much at all. I talk, I mostly would try to convince people in mass immigration, but the guilt, the IQ thing, I felt so much guilt about that mm. I wouldn't talk about it too, too much with people. And, and how was your experience of leaving and then being accepted by people on the outside change that, that fear? Well, right. Well, when I got accepted by everybody on the other side, I just I thought, well, what the heck? Like, they, they're not guilt tripping me. They're not doing all these things. I thought they were going to eat me up and spit me out. But no, they were just like, yeah, dude, we know some people that happened to and we're glad to see you over here. You know, we're a little skeptical of you, but we're glad to have you. Okay. And that's crazy. The alt right would have never. The alt right would never let a communist come into their group. You know, they say, "Guys, I'm sorry. I want to. I want to. You know, repent my communist ways." They say, "No way. You're you're a commie. Get out of here." Amazing. Never. There's one thing they say, and uh, they'll Chris, let a liberal in. They'll let a liberal and a conservative in, but they would never let a communist in. <laughs> there's a. This is really powerful. There's something that I I learned from actually from Orthodox Christians, right? I know there's a lot of. People are interested in orthodoxy to some extent on the alt right, but Christianity is—it's it's not just orthodoxy. There's there's um, a phrase in Christianity which is the, you know, one of the greatest lies of the devil. You know, one of the greatest tools of the devil in keeping people—you know—we can say we get this metaphorically—in keeping people in bondage is making them believe that there are some sins that are so bad that they cannot be forgiven. Yeah. And well, what, what is it? Right you know, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the whole point of Christianity is like it's it's like you know forgiveness has been you know repentance has been paid you know it's like so the forgiveness is open to everyone, but people are kept you know it's like oh it's so bad I can never be free you know so okay so four out of four check fair enough yeah all right. so all right number five is sacred science the group's doctrine or ideology is considered to be the ultimate truth beyond all questioning or dispute. Truth is not to be found outside the group. The leader as the spokesperson for God or for all humanity is likewise above criticism. Two words, race realism. Okay. That's it. Yeah, race realism. The, the belief that there are this essentialist belief that there are biological differences between the races and we can't escape them and that explains all the disparities between races and society. And that is a esoteric knowledge. I don't even want to call it esoteric because that's not the way they put it, but it really is. It's like this hidden knowledge that they we buried. And and so you have to read the bell curve because it's the only book that talks about it. And, it. and it's not the only book that talks about it because it's bullshit. No, it's the only book that talks about it because all the other publications, they, they, they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Th- yeah. The fake science. Uh, right. It, okay. Whenever I type, whenever I typed in race realism at the end of all this and I, and it came up as scientific racism on Wikipedia, I got a pit in my stomach. Wow. Which is why, which is why it was, I don't know if you followed this at all, which is why it was so insane to see like Sam Harris repping that book and having the author on and being like, Oh, well, it's just, you know, we just have to think about the, it's just science and numbers. And it's like, no, these things are not without. That that was such a confirmation bias. That was such a confirmation of my bias when I watched that Sam Harris thing. Okay. There was one thing true in the book, the graph, the chart, the stat, that was true. But the analysis, the, the uh, political uh, uh, prescription, uh, and, and, and actually looking at the stat and trying to figure out why there are IQ disparities, they, they don't want to go that far. They just say, here's the IQ disparities and it's because of, it's because of biology. It has nothing to do with the environment or, or oppression uh-huh. or any of that stuff. No, it's because 
it's and biology. It didn't happen. Like, for instance, housing, you know, I'm sure you may, you may have read this. Yes. Things with black people in America. Led. It broke my heart when, I, when Natalie taught me oh, all that, dude. Yeah. broke my heart. Redlining, gentrification. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was crazy. Uh, I don't, but you know, it's, it's a, there was this debate, famous debate between Sam Harris and Ezra, um, Ezra Klein, I think, from Vox where they went at this for like three hours and Sam Harris was like, well, it's the numbers, it's the science. And Ezra Klein is like, okay, first of all, this is not without context. These policies have been used to pass law to discriminate and hurt people of color. And the guy who wrote this isn't just a, a, a what do you call it, like an objective scientist. He then spent 20 years in Washington trying to use it to push public policy to get racist stuff enacted, you know, it was so, you know, like Sam Harris, I mean, it's like, dude, like, you know, we, we need, he's a grifter. You think so? I think so. He's a grifter. He's a little rich kid from wherever. And he just, I, I a grifter because I know that's a phrase. People so use. like, yeah. So, I, so it's, uh, I, I learned the phrase from Sam Cedar and uh, it's basically, I think, when I say grifter, I mean political grifters. People that take on a position um, to make money. They'll buy into an ideological belief because it's profitable. And that's who I see Sam Harris as. He doesn't seem to really have any like real beliefs. I think when he goes into his meditation, that's in his true state. When he empties his brain, that's his true state. Because other than that, he's just whatever, whichever way the wind blows. Yeah, and, and we can see that's, I think, one of the real problems here is that all these people, whether it's Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson or Stephen Crowder or Dave Rubin or Alex Jones, saw that this was a thing on the internet and decided to monetize it and, and then spread it, you know, spread this cancerous uh, meme flex to, to the mainstream. So Gavin McKenna's is the best example of that. Uh, you should research how right wing sometimes like uh, a lot of right wingers, when they, they fail as comedians, they will just become right wing pundits. And so uh, Crowder and McGinnis were two examples of this. Yikes. All right. So, so five out of five. Let's see. So six, loading the language. The group interprets or uses words and phrases in new ways so that often the outside world does not understand. This jargon consists of thought terminating cliches, which serve to alter members' thought processes to conform to the group's way of thinking. And I should, I should clarify what thought terminating cliches is because this is really important at all levels of society. It's something that sounds profound but is actually meaningless. Like mm. uh, uh, live, laugh, love, or always look on the bright side, or be here now, or, you know, like, like there's these, there are these kind of like, you always hear these things thrown around where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, it's like impossible to disagree with. Uh, and it just stops you from having rational discursive thoughts. So, but um, that, that aside, how, how does that apply or does it? PST, a lot of things get thrown around. I don't know if this applies here, but Stefan Molyneux likes to say not an argument a lot. Whenever someone tries to bring up a point, he'll say not an argument. That's not an argument, not an argument. And then um, also within the race and IQ stuff, uh, I don't. once again, I don't know if this is a point to what you're talking about, but you'll hear, um, oh, so you're trying to pretend that there's no biological differences between the race. Like uh, evolution doesn't have an effect on the brain. Like they'll repeat stuff. Basically, I just hear talking points a lot. That's what I'm taking from what you're saying. I just hear these like talking points that are very baseless and kind of like 
I'm trying to think of some more. I'm drawing a blank. But they have a lot of talking points that are very baseless and just kind of cliche. Okay. But there's also the kind of using the internal language. So the first part of that was the group interprets or uses words and phrases in new ways so that often the outside world does not understand. So the whole thing about using memetic terms, like all these weird, you know, all the jargon that the group has. Well, red pill would probably fall into that category. Um, there's, yeah, I'm trying to think. There are a lot of, they, ha- they, they do have a lot of jargon that they use. Red pill, great replacement. I don't know. I don't know if that would apply to what you're talking about, but it seems like it does to me. I thought a little bit about you're loading the language. Are you? Do you mean like, uh, like almost like where they water down language, like terms like no. cultural Marxism? Well, that could be part of it, but also I'm thinking more like this stuff on, you know, like when you see, I can't think of examples, but when you see like on the chans, like on poll, where they're like using all this their jargon. Uh, well, yeah. So there's just like inside words. Like, I'll, you know, you'll hear me say stuff like uh, red pill, black pill, white pill. Normies, I'll call people normies, boomers. Normies. Oh, oh, oh. well, every okay, all, so gamers are guilty of this, too. Gamers call people normies and boomers and, and zoomers. And, um, you know, you've got, uh, you know, they call uh, conservatives and anybody basically that's not an alt writer, you call you a cuck. Um, they have yeah. Yeah, they'll have words for Jews that they use. Yeah, there's a lot of inside language that they use. But I always saw that as a way to obfuscate what they're really talking about. But it's also like an internal. So let me. I'll just reread the. Let me just. So I'll reread the section. So loading the language, the group interprets or uses words and phrases in new ways, so that often the outside world does not understand. So. So in this case, it'd be using all this jargon. It's like, oh, so that normies can't understand what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The symbolism too, like the okay symbol, um, the milk, uh, the frog, like a lot of these things aren't just, they're ways that, it's so hard to talk about it because it's like, it has a purpose on many different levels. But one of the level, one of the ways it's used is to spread the idea amongst each other without revealing to the out group what you're talking about. Okay, so so check. So we got six out of six. Yeah. Uh, so seven, doctrine over person. Members' personal experiences are subordinated to the sacred science and any contrary experiences must be denied or reinterpreted to fit the ideology of the group. Say that again. Okay. Doctrine over person. Members' personal experiences are subordinated to the sacred science and any contrary experiences must be denied or reinterpreted to fit the ideology of the group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's say, like, you know, I started having experiences around, um, I'd spent a lot of time around black people in college, but then I found myself, like, uh, around some black people after that. It was one black friend in particular. And then he started showing me a lot of content because he watched, you know, he was on, I, I would call it black tube. You know, he watched like Vlad TV and like uh, a lot of these things. And I would listen to these black people talk. And I had all these like biases that I had built up in my head based on what was put in my head and probably stuff that I had picked up when I was young. And I started listening and I thought, well, wait a second. The things that they're saying are not what I've been taught. Are they lying? After a while, it got to me, and I realized that what I believed was bullshit. But yeah, um, if I were to, if I would have said that, if I was had had an in group and I had said that, and I see it in my comment section now, they're saying you know making comments 
that no, you're you're you need to drop your feelings and your personal experiences. This is about the cold hard facts. And if you want to look at the data, and they'll draw you into this big mm-hmm. long diatribe, and like right, which is yeah. also a standard internet. You know, it's kind of gaslighting, though, isn't it? Yeah, 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 totally. Right, and you well, also using the whole like using the you know, facts don't care about your feelings thing. You know, it's, it's definitely gaslighting. And it's like, because it's like, it automatically says, you know, I have the facts, you don't. You see people just do this on, when they're debating on Fox News or CNN, you know, it's, it's just a way of dominating the other person. You know, those aren't the facts that I have, that type of thing. So, yeah. Um, and if you're, you're debating with an unskilled person, it's easy to just steamroller over somebody like that, as opposed to somebody who can counter with their own, has brought their own studies and can counter with their own facts. But usually, <laughs> usually you don't get, debates like that unless both people are professional. Um, well, this is what they're going to try to do if they reel me into a debate. They all, the alt-writers, like the figureheads, want to debate me now, and this is what they're going to do if they get me in there. They're going to bring up some minute little statistic, and I'm not going to have the fucking dialogue tree to counter it. So they're going to say, see, uh, lib owned, right? And Well, you can always you can always engage by that just by not engaging with it. You know, or you, you can... Yeah, exactly. Almost like, you, know, you see the people do this all the time on CNN or Fox and say like, well, I think what we should... You just change the frame. It's like, well, I think what we, what we should really be talking about... Like, I understand what you're saying, and I think that what we should really be think, talking about is... And bring it back to something more fundamental and, con- and like conceptual. Well, you, you understand the concept of frame, right? Yeah, that framing, like framing the argument. It's what Ben Shapiro talks about. It's like how Ben Shapiro constructs arguments. He'll just constantly reframe it back into his terms. So if you talk about like transgenders, he'll say, well, we're talking about mental health here. and We're talking about the biology of the situation. They were born of Exactly. So you just counter and put it back into your own, you know, it's like, because as soon as you're in the, as soon as you're in the frame with them, it's like, if you join their debate, you automatically lose because you're playing. It's like you're playing on their territory now. Yeah. Right? Set up the game. So you're not going to win, right? So it's like you don't. You don't. You keep. You keep it in your frame. Okay. So we got seven out of seven. Uh, last one, number eight. Dispensing of existence. The group has the prerogative to decide who has the right to exist and who does not. This is usually not literal, but means that those in the outside world are not saved unenlightened, unconscious, and they must be converted to the group's ideology. If they do not join the group or are critical of the group, then they must be rejected by the members. Thus, the outside world loses all credibility. In conjunction, should any member leave the group, he or she must be rejected also. Yep, so you're seeing what's happening to me now. And then you're also, so the way I would break it down in terms of the movement I was in, the alt-lighters, which are less focused on race, which is what I was, less focused on race is that's the core principle. That's the fundamental thing that we need to drive. Um, alt-lighters are more concerned about IQ and culture. And we would look at the liberals and the leftists. I'm not, I'm and say, muscles for race, but okay. Yeah, well, they are dog whistles for race, and when you get and when you get to the bottom of the funnel, you realize that, and you say, "Oh shit!" Like, I've kind of been like, I have been a puppet this whole time. Right. Um, and Peterson uh, saying, "Mo Western civilization." Mo Western civilization, and I and we'll we'll talk about that another time. Yeah, that's yeah. white civilization. And I had a conservative. I had an alt right. He said he was a conservative. He was an alt writer. He admitted to that to me in a Discord call just the other night. He said, "Yeah, it's white civilization." Thank you, Richard Spencer will admit to the same thing. And so, uh, if you're an alt writer, then it's oh, it's the it's the liberals and the leftists. And then if you're an alt writer, 
then it's anybody who's not white. Mm. So we got eight out of eight then. Eight out of eight, brother. It's a cult. You were officially in a cult. (laughs) I can't believe that. And I used to like watch documentaries on cults and shit when I was in high school. And I always thought, well, I could never fall into that. It's so ridiculous. How would anybody fall for that? But they don't educate us educate us on cults correctly. Mm. They they just show you the ridiculousness of it. Well, but you don't see the ridiculousness of it when you go into it. Cults very often target educated and middle class people because they they I've want more with resources, right? And cult the ability to leverage cultural power. Um, so there you go. Look at Scientology. I mean, look how many you know. Look how many Hollywood people they have in that thing. Um, all right. Well, I think we've been going for like three hours, but I want. To, um, I think this has been a very productive conversation, and I want to reiterate: um, you've done, you've been very brave, and you know, like you were, you were going down the wrong path. Like, let's be clear, for for a while, uh, but it's it's good you've. Uh, you've done a brave thing in leaving, and I think that it's it, it, that your story is really important. And I want to underline that, and just you know, in the same way, like what we're you know, you've you've left and you got the love and connection that you were looking for outside of the group, and things have been okay for you, and have gotten a lot better. But yes or no, right? Yeah. So I just want to say again, this is all about mental health. This is all about, you know, fixing the isolation, the anxieties that people feel and redirecting that in a way that's positive and not about filling people with fear and then giving them some sort of target. Um, I am so much better off. I don't have those anxieties anymore. I don't have that feeling of being impure and I don't, I just, it's all gone. And I'm getting nothing but love on the other side. Even before I had the platform, do not think that this was just because I have a bunch of fans. No, before I had the platform, I was getting that same unconditional love. Just like I talked about, it's the love that Jesus gave. It was grace. You don't have to be religious to accept that concept. That's beautiful. All right. Well, it sounds like you got big plans to continue helping other people get out. Um, Where can people find you online? For right now, I will have more platforms in the future. But for right now, you can find me on my YouTube channel at Faraday Speaks. That's F-A-R-A-D-A-Y-S-P-E-A-K-S. And then you can find me on Twitter at the same handle at Faraday Speaks. All right. Well, it was wonderful to talk to you. I wish you great luck in your your new adventure going forward. And um, I think that you know, one thing that I said to you on Twitter is one thing to keep in mind is because I do expect you're going to get pushback as well, um, both from people on the right and there may be, uh, you know, people may attack you on the left. You know, it's like, it's not like, it's not like the thing of leftist attacking people on Twitter isn't real, right? You know, it's like that does happen. I've seen a little bit of it. It's been, but it's been very fringe. As I, I do want to be clear, I have seen it, but it's been so fringe. I haven't even hardly noticed it. Okay. Well, it happens, you know, and, and I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things about the internet is to always focus on the, it's not only just, it's not only to keep focused on your positive interactions on the internet, but it's also to remember that the negative people, if they do show up are always more vocal than the positive ones. And I think that what is very likely to happen in your case is that a lot of people uh, may choose to leave or de-radicalize because of things that you're saying or the story you're spreading, and you're never going to hear about it. 
And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is um, it just they may not want to share, but also they're not going to want to take the step of sharing that they were in the group. They would rather, probably much rather leave and move on. So it's very likely that lots and lots of people are going to be powerfully impacted by what you're saying, and you're never going to know about it. And so I would just, um, you know, I, I think it's good to bear that in mind and don't get discouraged if it seems like you're getting negative pushback in opposed to positive. But it sounds like you're getting lots of positive. I mean, yes, the dopamine hit will wear off, but, you know, if it, as, it, as it goes on. And I think Christian Piccolini is a great person to be in in touch with and um, a good model. In Christian that. has been great. He's like, yeah, he's been very close to me and he's been wonderful. That's great. Yeah, I would love to talk to him too. Um, yeah. I would love to. Okay. All right, man. It's been great and good luck with your... Good luck with what what comes next. Thank you, man. Jason, you've been you've been awesome. You've got a lot of knowledge. I, I would love to have another conversation, maybe even private. And anytime you want to have me on, just let me know. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. As always, check out magic.me, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot me big changes have been taking effect there and will be continuing over the next few months we're doing some serious stuff there all right i will see you there i will see you in class until next time lots of love bye